You're listening to Al Yoshi Did It Podcast with Yoshi Obayashi and Lilith Arvani. Okay, so hi everyone. We're back in Beverly Hills. Um, my <laughs> name is Yoshi. I'm here with my uh, co-host, Lily. I have to say, Lily did a wonderful job in last episode when my friend Miki from Japan was visiting. We were talking about racism, oh, and thank uh, you. Um, I, w- I was surprised because I know you're very smart, but timing's really good for someone who doesn't done comedy for years, you know. So I was really happy, and you were paying attention, and whenever you did something, call back. That was excellent. So I was really, really happy with it. And I feel like we're coming to a point, like, you know, I'm not gonna say John Stockton and Carl Malone, but like we we could kind of we kind of <laughs> well, I can re- hope Utah Jazz, uh, right, which <laughs> probably a bad reference because she's a Laker fan. But um, um, I Stockton was one of my favorite players, though. So I'm yeah, they kind of knew when he used to play. So. We're we're getting better at it, and um, I, we apologize because some of the episodes that you'll be hearing soon, they're out of sequence. So if, if it seems a little off, because they're probably most likely the earlier episodes. Anyway, so having said that, I was I was very happy with the last issue. Thanks. And, and someone just emailed me and said, "I'm your Robin Quivers tier." Oh Howard God, Stern. great! <laughs> I, I I disagree with that. You, you contribute way too much to be the Robin Quivers. Thanks. I'm, yes, I'm your. Left testicle. And you have a better credit. Yours left testicle. Not quite. <laughs> so I'm here with Lilith and, of course, my friend and um, um, roommate, Joey Kurtzman. And uh, he's always great to have because if you don't know him, he's very intimidating because I think his middle name <laughs> probably should be Wikipedia because... <laughs> he works for Wikipedia. <laughs> I, oh. Even it's a... Uh, uh, you know, um, mundane conversation. He'll bring something really interesting. He's able to connect two unrelated things in a really smart, interesting way. So I'm I'm almost happy that he's here because tonight I'm really excited because I didn't think this ever will ever happen because our good friend and your good friend now, Luke Ford, will be here. He's here right now, and what a fascinating person because when I first met him years ago, I was afraid of him. Because at the time he was uh, as a, a blogger for adult business, he had a tremendous amount of influence in the business. They even say he was mad drudge of the business, and people had a mixed feelings about it. But whenever mainstream people needed any sort of um, information about adult business, this is the guy you go. Not even close. We had our good friend Josh Gross from for ESPN. He is. The look for of a, a mix, mixed martial art. They have a great deal in common. Yes, very common and. Um, when we released second episode was with Hunter Moore, who was the most hated man in the web, but the guy who was more <laughs> the guy who was hated before that was <laughs> Luke because of the adult business they were afraid of him but yeah. Luke was hated for more interesting reasons. Yeah. Hunter Moore was hated because he 's a prick uh, Luke, he's a, well, Luke, Luke, Luke. i like I, I like Hunter, but I think i 'd like to say he 's a likable uh, rogue, but yeah I mean, people have mixed feelings about him but Luke is just fascinating character because he's from Australia. Um, <laughs> his his father is just a, I mean, a, a evangelical Christian and very powerful. He's an extremely uh, prominent theologian in n- Seventh Day Adventism. Very few people can relate to what it's like to have a father who's who's that powerful in a religious community and that influential. 
and he's an iconoclast like Luke, so a fascinating individual. Fascinating. Not only does well faith in one hand, but this inter intellectual background because he has several PhD in, and he's a very very smart and uh, and I saw a couple of clips of, of him on YouTube, and he's an incredibly funny guy too. And I think that's where I got the feeling that Luke's sense of humor comes from here as well. So mm -hmm. religious background, come to America, big fan of Dallas Cowboy. Um, <laughs> uh, this is great. I, I love anyone who likes NFL football. And uh, he made a transition as a blogger in adult business. He wrote a uh, great book about history of porn. Is it History of X? History of X, yeah. history of X 100 Years of yeah. Sex and Film. Fascinating. I highly recommend it because I think you're the first person that I remember reading about it. And you, you did this wonderful um, in-depth research about connection between mob and uh, adult business. And uh, eventually, uh, you left that business, and now you're back, religious pursuit in a different f area. And how how would you describe that, Joey? He's now. Well, I mean, I, I, Luke Luke probably could describe it more accurately. But the way I would describe it is that I mean, it was a gradual thing. He he converted to Orthodox Judaism. Luke did while while you were in in the adult business still. <coughs> um, at some point there. You became less interested in discussing your past in in the adult business, and Luke initially had a difficult time. The Orthodox Jewish community is very kind of precious and and mm. and concerned with itself and concerned with its reputation. And somebody like Luke is very dangerous for a community like that. Yeah. Um, and 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 I have to say, incredibly good friend, loyal friend, but so honest. <laughs> You know, I, I'm a pretty filthy comic, but there's times Luke is so honest, like, wow, you know, it's, 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 he has the honesty of, like, great comedian, so I'm, I'm really happy that he's here. I, let me just get one thing mm -hmm. out there, because I know a lot of the people who listen to this show also listen to DVD ASA, and one of the things that we constant, the feedback that we've always gotten on that is that, I love you, you guys are so honest, you just say what's going on, and, and it makes me feel less lonely, and we like to listen to it. I always appreciate that. Um, we, I think we are very, very honest compared to most people. We're Bush League compared to Luke. If you go, it, Luke has a show that he's doing in April. If you go to that show... Which is the name of it is what? Uh, the name of it is Eroticized Rage. And if you go to that show, you will see a level of honesty that you've, you, don't, you haven't heard on, on DVD essay. Not because we weren't, are not willing to be that honest, but because we're genuinely not capable of it. Luke has a... a um, it's 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 astonishing. If that's what you find appealing about those podcasts, I highly recommend you mm -hmm. you go to Eroticized Rage. I was fucking blown away um, by it. Um, really, uh, it, it, it was the single best. It was the single most powerful night of theater I've ever experienced in my life. And I spent six years in Europe going to going to theater, yeah. so that says a lot. And, and I apologize, Luke. I, I wanted to go, but it was Super Bowl Sunday. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. You know, my mother could be dying from a heart attack. I'm sorry. You know, Super Bowl number one, number two, and always you know top three. So, but um, Luke, thank you very much for coming here. I, I want to just start from the beginning, like your childhood in Australia and uh, your about your father. It's just everything's fascinating. So I'm sorry. You know, we probably have a couple hours, but I want to hear all, all of it. And we'll end, end the tail end of it, just getting detail about your show. So um, welcome to the show, Luke. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> pressure's, pressure's on you now. <laughs> no, let's just talk about Luke the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what kind of kid were you growing up in Australia? What was it like growing up in Australia? I'd say depressed, uh, angry kid. I reminded many people of, of a Holocaust survivor. <laughs> my, my eyes were just like sunken into my skull. 
because uh, my mother slowly withered away and died of cancer before I was four. Mm. And so my father couldn't really look after me and do, yeah. his, do his work at the same time. So I got farmed out to a lot of different people. And there was a b- huge gap between your siblings, weren't they? Right. Yeah, my, my sister's like 11 years older and my brother's almost nine years older than me. I see. So my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer on my first birthday. Yeah. And then so after that, I kept getting shopped around to different people. Yeah. And I'd stay someplace for a few weeks, another place for a few months. And it was a bit of a horror show. So I never learned that basic human connection that, mm-hmm. that you get when you can connect to your mother like when you can just like look at your mother and your mother looks at you and yeah. you, you start to learn to connect. So I was disconnected and just angry. And I remember when I was about four years old, my father heard me screaming and he came out and he saw me flinging manure at these kids and screaming, I hate you, I hate you. Yeah. And and just like the level of, of rage just uh, really disturbed my father because he thought it meant I was so disconnected from Jesus. Right. Did you, do, you, do you remember about your mom? Uh, I only have one memory of my mother, and that is her serving me scrambled eggs. And I that, see. That was my favorite food until I got to UCLA at like age 22 and ate some bad scrambled eggs in the cafeteria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that ruined that, that food for me ever since. But I really only have one memory. And then one other memory that I was told about a lot where I'd broken into my sister's perfume collection and mm-hmm. mixed it with toothpaste and smeared it all over the bathroom. <laughs> right. And my sister like got so angry and started beating me. And my mother crawled out of the sip bag and oh. kind of draped herself over yeah. me and says, he's only a little boy. He doesn't know what he's doing. And so I think just because I heard that story so much, I maybe have to imagine that I remember some parts of it. As a woman, like I mean, that, you know, that just seemed like this. Here's a sick person. B- before the mm-hmm. before the sh- the woman uh, therapist comes in. Wow. We, okay. Well, no, no, because right. she has an insight that we're not get, we yeah, don't yeah. have. Uh, Luke's father, I mean, I think is aware and has said has said that because I read uh, I read uh, your autobiography that. He's aware that Luke constantly had he had female figure after female figure after female figure. So it wasn't like there was a vacuum and there was no woman. Right. It was one after another but after another mean, after another. What do you mean that your father he was remarrying or he's dating someone? No, I was found out to different people to look after. So different nannies for a few years. My first few years, I wasn't at home. I didn't really have parents. So because your dad was not capable out. of taking care of you. Correct. His dad uh-huh. was too busy loving Jesus to take right. care of his child. Is that uh, so? Where were your siblings? Uh, they were they were easy to take care of because they were older. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sometimes I guess they were with dad, and sometimes they would stay various places as well. Yeah. But I think there's a real difference between oh. just having an absence of female energy as a child, and then having repeated repeated versions of it that are taken from you again and mm-hmm. again and again. I think in some ways that's more of a mindfuck for a child than. than I remember when my my father remarried a few months after my mother died because the church told him he needed to remarry mm-hmm. and because he needed someone to look after the kids right. and because he needed a secretary to help him with his French and German translations. <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, wait. Can you, here's a silly question. Scheiße. Why, why, why uh, German and French trans- translations? Because uh, he wanted to get a second PhD and ah. he was doing it in New Testament studies and many of the great Bible scholars uh, wrote in German. Oh. And so, anyway, he got, he married his secretary mm-hmm. and my 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 biological mother had approved this that you should marry Jill. Oh wait 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 wait. What? This was made this this decision was, was made, made while my mother was still alive. Yeah. Oh. What? So what do you? And you so see my, a lot of men in power 
kind of marry or, or have relationships with women who work for them because they're nurturing <coughs> usually towards the man they work for. Yeah, they prop them up. Yeah. And so when Jill came into my life... Well, wait, 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 sorry to continue. So what, what, what does that make you feel? Is that, is that strange? I mean... <laughs> well, it's the only childhood that I know, so yeah. it's not strange to me, but I just want to get this. Yeah. When, when Jill came into my life, I, I really clung to her because she, she was a, around. Mm-hmm. And, and when I was about five, I said to her, I'm a lucky boy. Most boys only have one mummy. I've had lots, but I don't yeah. want any more. Yeah. Is that the most, like, uh, I mean, that's, uh, uh, yeah. you, that, that, could, that could break you for, for a week. Just here. I mean, yeah. I just hope after all the women here at this podcast, they will send nude pictures to look for. <laughs> Luke it, just, it, just ma- it just make me feel so bad hearing this. Um, That's why he tells the story. No, it pulls heartstrings. No, it's not. It's not. He's. He, he, well, okay. just ca- I'm just kidding. No, no, I was just gonna say. I mean, I mean, this make, is something that you would, you would hear in a movie or something. I can't believe you know it's um, here. Okay, so you liked her. You got along with her. Yeah, except for the two months of the two weeks of the month when she was insane. She had severe <laughs> premenstrual syndrome. I see. So she would just have rages. She, she was a big woman, like five foot ten, and when she'd slap me, I would just go flying across the oh. room, bouncing off the furniture. And so she was just nuts, mm-hmm. alternating between rage and depression two or three weeks out of the month. Did your father think she was possessed by a devil that, that week or so when she was going crazy? Or did she just he just said, oh... It, no, we're... my parents wondered if I'm possessed by the devil, oh. seriously. But uh, no, did, did, she eventually got the help she needed when I was 18. So, But from age 4 to age 18, she was insane. Well, what, just PMS? or It was severe premenstrual syndrome. And let me jump in on that because... In my, in, if there's a one person who knows something about PMS... It's Joey. Hey, it's, Joey. It's, it, 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 it's me. No, I mean, for a number of reasons. But, but one of them is that um, I can vouch for Luke, first of all, that my father, as an adult, has had talks with me. Look, when you were younger, we didn't know what PMS was. There, you know, my mom, God bless her, I love her. She was, a, she was a wonderful mother in lots of ways, not nearly as extreme as Luke's situation. But her, her hormonal rhythms governed the house. I see. Um, and it was... It was kind of scary at times. She wasn't 5'10". She was a little woman. That makes a difference. But um, I'm just saying that for people who out there who just think, oh, PMS, my chick's got PMS. I know what that is. No, no, no. You, if you haven't experienced the kind of thing Luke's talking about, you don't know what it is, and it's legit, and it's extreme, and it's very scary. And as my dad was a Seventh-day Adventist minister, he could not divorce her because that would end his career as a gospel preacher. Mm. And so I grew up in a home where my father was just yearning for my mother to die. Oh. Being my stepmother. Is it that? Is the only way out is for her to die? Is it that obvious to you as a kid? Yeah, I picked it up. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, and I'm very ignorant about that church. Can you explain to listeners? Because I don't think I'm, and I'm sure there's plenty of others. We we, we have people from all over the world listening. Did, um, how do you explain? He the, really does. By the way, it's interesting seeing his stats. It really is global. <laughs> um, and it gets more every single yeah, uh, week. I'm, it's really we impressive. had like another three or four African countries. I don't know why, why, <laughs> yeah. I don't know why they were listening. But yeah. So the, the church, can you explain a little bit of doctrine and uh, yeah, why are they so different from other Christian church? So Seventh-day Adventist means Seventh-day Park comes from they keep the Sabbath akin to the way that Jews keep the Seventh-day Sabbath mm-hmm. from Friday night sundown to sundown Saturday night. Mm-hmm. Adventist means the soon coming of Jesus Christ. So the Seventh-day Adventist church started in 18... 44 
which is 2300 years after 456 BC <laughs> when the sanctuary was rededicated under Ezra the scribe and Nehemiah. And so there's a prophecy that under 2300 days then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Seventh-day Adventists interpreted the 2300-day prophecy as a year for a day, so 2300 years later, sanctuary would be cleansed, meaning in 1844, Jesus moved from the holy to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary to begin the final work, judging the saints just prior to coming back to earth, taking the 144,000 righteous with him back to heaven, and then destroying the world in fire for 1,000 years, and then cleansing it, and then the righteous would come back to earth and lead a heavenly life. Amen. Hallelujah. There you go. No, that's, and everything Luke said, the thing, I mean, the thing that always struck me about the seventh, because as a child, I used to volunteer at the Seventh-day Adventist Medical Center in Glendale. I don't know if I told you that, but, but everything you're saying is, is strongly rooted in, in kind of Old Testament history. I mean, it all makes sense from a, from a Jew, I mean, kind of from a, you can understand it from a Judaic perspective. I mean, I think that it makes sense to all of us. Yeah. I, mean, when I said that. We all, yeah. we all recognize the divine truth, and, yeah. and we may try yeah. to deny it, but in our hearts, I think each one of us knows the divine truth that I just spoke. No, but there's, there's, you know, there's you're just one cross away from Yamaka. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. It's more like it's for a Jew. It's easier to understand than a lot of other uh, Christian traditions. Uh, wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. And and anyone who takes the Bible seriously or takes religion seriously mm-hmm. knows that if you just take one or two steps, then <sighs> suddenly the most bizarre things to outsiders suddenly be, make sense. Yes, absolutely. So absolutely. So I know he was very, uh, he, he's still respected, but what was the controversy he brought to church? Well, my father did not agree with this foundational distinctive teaching mm-hmm. of the Seventh-day Adventist church that I just described. And so he, he kind of kept his disagreement to himself. My father was more of an evangelical Christian who, who believed that as long as you accepted Jesus, you were good to go for, for, for heaven. And so finally, when he was about 50, on October 27, 1979, when I was 13 years old, he gave this talk where he said that this, this foundational Seventh-day Adventist teaching was not biblical. And from a Protestant perspective, they believe that there's only one source for authority, and that's the Bible. Mm-hmm. So when you say something's not biblical, you're saying it's not of God. And so he took on the central doctrine of the Seventh-day Adventist church. And so if created a shaking of Seventh-day Adventism. It convulsed the church. All the church leaders and leading scholars gathered one week in August of 1980, and I was there at Glacier View in Denver area, Colorado, and they had this big uh, conclave, which resulted in my father being expelled from the Seventh-day Adventist church ministry, and our family left the the church. And so until this point, until I was 14, I never had a non-Seventh-day Adventist friend. Mm-hmm. And then we were expelled, and we went out into the world, and it was kind of a they, so I'm sorry. World. What's what's the difference between that excommunication? It's very similar. Yeah, excommunication is and, that only the Catholic thing? Well, no, Jews also excommunicate. Oh, sorry, go, go. yeah, I mean, groups, any group excommunicates people, saying you, you know you can no longer belong to our stamp club. Or how does that work? <laughs> like the, the the majority of the church had to vote against you. Well, any time you go against the foundational principle of any group, they're mm-hmm. going to kick you out. Okay. So whether it's a stamp club or a football club. So the actual mechanics of it was that the Seventh-day Adventist church is hierarchical, unlike Judaism, where mm-hmm. it's individual synagogues. But in the Seventh-day Adventist church, like Roman Catholicism, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a top. There's well, a what, leader. I, I, mean, I, I obviously don't call that person Pope, but what do you call him? General Conference President. 
Ah. And so General Conference President Neil Wilson, he was a very savvy uh, manipulator. And so it was ordained that my father was going to get expelled. And Elder Wilson, as he was called, you know, got it done. Mm-hmm. And my father was simply expelled from Seventh-day Adventist employment in the Seventh-day Adventist ministry. But the no, thing no, wait, 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 before you continue, because this is something, uh, um, this is kind of funny, re- really weird reference. But I, I like studying Richard Nixon, and he talked when he got uh, impeached. He called this period the wilderness period, where very difficult period of time, but they go through a transformational period and change and become even stronger. Did, did, did something like that happen to your dad? Because he was kicked out. What, what, ha- what did he do after that? I mean, Well, he went on and formed his own non-denominational evangelical Christian foundation called Good News Unlimited, and you can find it online at goodnewsunlimited.org. Mm-hmm. But whereas he was once speaking when he was in the church to yeah. thousands of people at a time and hundreds of people at a time, he started now sometimes speaking to 12 people at a time. I see. Or 50 Just like my comedy shows. All right. Um. <laughs> but, but let me also say something else. Yes. He, Luke, Luke's father, when he gave this talk, mm. it was not um, some unpleasant surprise to him that he was, expe- uh, that he was excommunicated. He, he, he knew this would be the consequence, yes? I don't think so. Oh. I think that my father was oh. in the grip of things that were beyond his his understanding like okay. we often we often act in the world and even though everyone else can see what the consequences are going to be for yeah. us we can't see them yes. and i don't think my father let me ask this okay if, if, knowing what he knows and if he go he could go back in time will he still do it you think my father has never been one to say he was wrong Mm. So he's pretty principled too, correct? I yeah. would imagine. Okay. <laughs> yes, Lydia. I had a question. Yes. Did you identify with religion growing up? Did it help your childhood, uh, given especially since a mother figure was always kind of coming and going in your life and turbulent? How did you feel about having only Seventh-day Adventist friends till you were 14 and then afterwards? Like, what was that like? It, it gave me a sense of who I was. Mm-hmm. And, and I noticed so many people don't know who they are. Mm-hmm. And so it was a great blessing in a sense that I have a very distinct identity. And that was a blessing. And it was also a blessing to believe that there was a, the creator of the universe cared about me and monitored me. So that, that was a blessing. Uh, on the downside, any time I did anything, it would get reported to my parents because my dad was very influential in the community. Mm-hmm. So he was a preacher and I was his youngest kid. And so if I said the word bloody which is a swear word in Australia, mm-hmm. would get reported back to my parents. Oh wow. oh, wow. And because my father was so controversial for his preaching, he had to kind of be extra strict with the family. We all had to live up to his impossible, invisible standard. Mm-hmm. That's what happens when you have a super achiever father figure. You, it just imbues tremendous feelings of shame yeah. because you always feel like you're not living up to this invisible standard. Right. So... I, I was afraid of being punished. I didn't want to get hit anymore, so I started telling lies. And then when my lies got discovered, I got hit more. Mm-hmm. And then th- there were additional punishments. I had to read 40 pages of some dense work of Christian apologetics every day and type a one-page summary. That was my, kind of my punishment for telling lies. So I learned all the arguments for the truth of the Christian religion. But more than that, I learned how much I hated it. Yeah, but because it just seems like a really <laughs> way to teach a ch- kid a religion. By punishing them with it. You only study it when you're getting punished. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I, I also remember, I, 
I can identify with, first of all, the Well, it's supposed to give you a better understanding of what you did wrong, right? It's, it's trying to hit that part of, that shame part of you, like you should yeah. feel bad because look what is yeah, what's but it's, it's in the form and it's what a, you should have done. But it's in the form of a punishment. I, w- I yeah, remember having, right. when I was, I mean, growing up having to, I can identify with Luke's on a number of levels. One was as a punishment having to write something similar about Judaism and then having to tear it up and throw it in the trash can as part of a punishment. Well, I think parents don't realize sometimes um, is that when you issue a punishment, a kid sees it as punishment so that they don't like it, like classical yeah. conditioning. However, the reason they're doing it is to try to teach a lesson where the child is going to take something from it that it's going to make them a better human being. So there's like I'm sure for many people it would. So yeah. you take that identical punishment and many people would have become finer and better for that punishment and become, gone on to become better Christians. Mm-hmm. And hmm. with my perverse or just who I was, um, it created like this latent hatred that I wasn't fully aware of, that I just hated. And, and then when I grew up and had the opportunity to go do my own thing, I kind of tapped into that hatred and said, I'm going in a different direction. Yeah. So how, how did it... I remember you explained to me, what, to me, but eventually, how did you end up in the States? I don't, I don't remember. My dad was a very controversial Seventh-day Adventist preacher, uh-huh. and so the church thought that by taking him out of the relatively small pond of Australian Seventh-day Adventism yes. and dropping him into the much bigger pond of American Seventh-day Adventism, I that see. it would create less trouble, but it didn't work out that way. So we came to the United States when I was 11. What was that experience for you? Well, I love to read about American history, so I was very excited, and it was, it was wonderful to come to America because people didn't know I was a loser. Mm-hmm. In Australia, at school, people, I mean, I mean, you, people you, knew I was a loser. How? Yeah. Why but would they America, see you as a loser? Because I, was, I used my mind and my brain and my words to put people down, and so everyone hated me. I remember oh. in second grade, my classmate Gavin Brown had the birthday party, and he didn't invite me. And so I was over at my best friend Wayne's house, and Wayne's mother intervened and said, you know, Luke really should go along to the party. So I went along. When I was at the party, all the other kids made sure to let me know that they didn't want me there, that it was only because they had to have me there. And so that is just so emblazoned in my memory. They were just bullying and just intimidated by you and your intelligence, I'm sure. And I remember my therapist said... You should call your autobiography The Uninvited because that motif <laughs> Sorry, that just happened again and again and yeah. again through my life. But then I come to America at age 11. People don't know I'm a loser. They find me interesting. Yeah. It's exciting. Uh, I'm starting sixth grade and the most beautiful girl in the class walks by my desk one Loves day. your accent. She drops a note <laughs> on my desk and it says, will you go with me? Yeah. And I adored this girl. But I was flooded by emotion. And when you're flooded, you're immobilized. Also, I had no example for love because mm-hmm. I didn't see any love in my home. Yeah. I had a father who had a PhD in rhetoric and excelled at putting people down mm. and driving them crazy with the things he said. So Not to mention, he has that religious thing to drop, you know, throw at you as well, you know. And he's so waiting I, for your mom to die, your stepmom. <laughs> so I responded. Even though this was what I wanted, this girl was Cindy Anderson, was what I wanted more than anything else. This is the greatest thing that ever happened to me in my yeah. whole life. I'm 46 years old, and this was greater than anything that's ever happened to me, her dropping the note on my desk. Yeah. Never again is the most beautiful girl in the class wanted to go with me. And I responded by teasing her publicly oh, no. and making her life miserable. 
But I was so screwed up at like near the end of the school year, I dropped a note on her desk after all that, asking her, will you go with me? She wrote back, no, with all sorts of exclamation points. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can't break a girl's heart like that. But look, I, I Teasing them's not going to make I, I you did that want same. you more. I remember doing the same thing. I don't know why I did that too. Insecurity? There was one person who knew I was a loser, and that was me. Yeah. I knew I was a loser, yeah. and I knew that I was not worthy of her. And I resented it, mm-hmm. and I hated it, and I got angry about it, and I ridiculed her and put her down because I felt so ashamed of who I was in comparison to how beautiful did she you, was. Did you feel unlovable that she didn't... Did you believe that she loved you? Or, want, I mean, you know, whatever yeah, that means I did. when you're 11. I did. You're 11, I did. But you still felt compelled thing. to push her I, away. I didn't know how else to react. The previous year, fifth grade, was the first time any girl showed an interest in me. Mm-hmm. It was a chubby girl, and I didn't know how to react. I was not interested in her. Mm-hmm. So I put tax shop side up on her desk oh so that when she'd sit on them she would like bleed and, like, and you're yelp. the Bart Simpson of Australia like, she'd yelp like a stuck pig <laughs> and when she got too close to me I would kick her mm-hmm. and she told me one day after I'd kicked her and tears were streaming down her face she said one day you'll know what it's like to be kicked by someone you love oh, mm. oh. wow god man I'm gonna cry yeah. <laughs> <This is making laughs> It took me many, many years to be able to express and accept, accept love. I was just so uncomfortable with it because my father hated to be touched because of his own yeah. neglectful upbringing. My father has no... It's interesting. When I, when I read about your father, maybe I'm wrong, but uh, his father was atheist. Is that correct? I'm not sure, but his father had nothing to do with him, basically. So I see. I think his father was an atheist. And uh, his mother wasn't particularly religious. She was a sex and love addict. I see. And she would just go around Australia chasing men and kind of dragging my dad and his brother along. And (laughs) Wow. And his brother? Yeah. So my dad grew up, you know, with the chronic anxiety that you get when you don't have a secure connection at home. Absolutely. But instead of going into his addiction, into addictions like alcohol or sex, he went into workaholism and threw himself into saving souls for Jesus. I see. Um, so you live in the States. Did you, I guess you moved quite a bit as well in, in the States? A, a little bit. I, I was in the Napa Valley at Pacific Union College for 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. Then at the end of 8th grade, my father was expelled from the church, and we moved to Auburn, California. Wait, what did he do this time? That he was it, it was that story I told you. He did oh, the, that? the oh, foundational okay, theological. Okay. Okay. So he went and founded his own uh, Christian foundation, and uh, he, he told people, we now belong to the invisible church of Jesus Christ which sounds wonderful, but the Invisible Church of Jesus Christ did not have a big social program. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard to see. We, had like, we, we, we formed our own little church, and about, I don't know, 100 people would show up. Yeah. Like 40 of them were retarded girls that were being looked after <laughs> by this, this couple. You know, They would take in retarded girls yeah. and get paid by the state for looking after yeah. them. And girls who were retarded just by. adore me. There's something about having a missing chromosome. Or yeah. I'm not exactly sure how mental retardation works. Were you nice to them, though? Yeah, I was nice to them because I was now in high school. I was yeah. a little more. I mean, I didn't try anything with them. Yeah. I wasn't attracted to them. Did they try way. anything with you? No, they, were, they would giggle when I came around, but uh, that, w- that was it. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I would. <laughs> Look, I would imagine um, 
past. Be, be, because I didn't know you when you were a kid, but um, I have to say, when you don't have a relationship with your mother or or not having your, your real mother around, I, I have to say, it's some cliche, but it does affect you how you feel about women and relationship with women, you know. And then it's no surprise that you and I, when we met first, <laughs> convention, this must have been 2004 or five when I met you. And um, you were very, very nice. It's just that people were saying things about you. I was worried about losing my job. But, you know, you said, <laughs> I told you why I worked for Evil Angel, this and that. You were very friendly. And um, you might have given me a call or something. Like, if you ever have a news, let me know. But that's about it. And uh, I thought, wow, you know, everybody's making this guy out to be a boogeyman in the business. But he was very polite. Um, well, it's still like nice that. Mm -hmm. When I went, the first time I was on a porn set, I remember you mentioning to <coughs> someone there that I was friends with Luke Ford. And it was like it was like Joyce Severo and John Stellion. Yeah, it was like a chill moved over the yeah. whole set. Like everyone, there was like everyone was like, hmm. Mm. And one guy, that guy Dave, talked to me about Luke. But everyone else was like all of a sudden very wary of, of discussing anything with me because I was friends with you. So uh, it made me feel powerful. I before we go more into that, can you tell us how you transitioned into the porn world from this very religious upbringing and because usually women with daddy issues go into porn but you're like an exception as a yeah, man going right <laughs> well you went you, i never thought of it like that that's true <laughs> i mean you went to ucla so in in fourth grade mm -hmm. um my friend went into his brother's trailer and came out with a stack of magazines and we went out back and we lay down amidst the tobacco plants and we opened up and went through it was the first time i'd seen nudie magazines yeah and it was the most exciting moment of my life up yeah. until then because these girls in these magazines, they truly understood me. Yeah. <laughs> they knew what I was thinking. They knew what I wanted most. And they liked to tease me. They liked to please me. They like put a little finger in their mouth. They knew exactly what was on my mind. They showed me what I was most interested in. And just like my dad studied the Bible, I studied these magazines. <laughs> <laughs> this was like this was heaven to me. My yeah. dad wanted to be in heaven with Jesus. I wanted to be in with these girls. Yeah. And so it also frightened me the power that this material had over me. So I didn't look at it again. I, I said, okay, I cannot go. I cannot visit this this land again. But uh, in in one, tenth grade, I started going back to the pawn. Once again, verse. I, I didn't realize how much we have a similarity. I was so crazy and delusional back then, thinking. They were, <laughs> they were talk, not talking to me, but they specifically took pictures, having you know because I needed them. It's intimate. It's, it's, it's an exchange. There, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of that. I, I could see by the look on their faces that they knew what I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah. it was yeah. like it was. It, I felt so understood, and I felt totally embraced. I just felt totally welcomed into their world and embraced and it was like a beautiful world and I knew mm -hmm. there that there was this beautiful sweet world out there and I just had to find it but did you get did you did are you a titty man yeah but, I mean, <laughs> but did you get in trouble when you guys were looking at the magazine yeah his my, my my friend's mother caught him and she said you're not looking at Brian's magazines are you and so she gave us a lecture and said, you know, looking at these magazines led Brian into becoming a drug trafficker and <laughs> ruined his life. And, uh, and I was so worried. Is that for real? Yeah. And oh, yeah. so I was worried. If they told my parents, I would get the spanking to end all spankings. And, but luckily she said, I won't tell your parents. But I got so frightened by the experience that I didn't look at this material for another like six years. I see. Mm. And, then, and then I started 
because we were traveling so much, we spent a lot of time at airports. And I'd go to the newsstand to read like Time or Sports Illustrated, but all around would be would be men in business suits leafing through Playboy and Penthouse. Yeah. And I'd just get like a quick glance, and it was just the most amazing sights. It just I flushed my my heart raced my my blood pulsed. It was just the most fantastic material. And eventually, now that we were out of the church, God became less real to yeah. me. And we finally bought a TV for the first time. So TV became more real. And like the sensual pleasures of Charlie's Angels and that other material on the TV was just like amping up my libido. And so when I was 16, I finally picked up a Playboy magazine for myself in the newsstand. It was was fantastic. It was the April 1982 issue. It had this like spinner girl, Linda Reese Vaughn on it. She was like five Spinner foot tall. Spinner girl? You mean she small? Was, she was like five foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> and she like she loved to ride horses. Is that Australian for midget? No, it's a girl you can you can lie in back and spin her around on your on oh. your yeah. <laughs> it's like she would have been so much fun to play with. And and then as with any addiction, I started stealing for it. It's like when I came home, I started going through my neighbor's mailboxes looking for Playboys. Mm-hmm. And finally, in the fall of that year, I got the December 1982 issue. My neighbor had it. I, I put it out of the mailbox, looked around. No one saw me. I went down to this deserted barn. Mm-hmm. And it was the first time that I had a Playboy magazine all to myself. Yeah. And Charlotte Kemp was the centerfold. I mean, she was stacked, stacked, <laughs> like E-cup breasts. And it was the first time that I got to have sex with a centerfold. You know, all by myself. What age did you start masturbating? So it was the beginning of my junior year of high school. So it was September of 1982. I was 16 and I'd bought this pornographic novel at a used bookstore and I was staying with friends. Uh, My parents were gone. So I went home. House was deserted. I start reading this novel and as I'm reading, I start pressing on myself. Yeah. And I start pressing on myself and pressing on myself and then I feel like this tension throughout my body, like from the top of my head yeah. to my toes, it's all like rushing towards my midsection. And then suddenly there's this like involuntary uh, expulsion of this like sticky gray mucus-like fluid. And it just like shoots all across the room. It, <laughs> like, it goes on my leg, goes on the book, and it goes all across the couch. And it just kept shooting. And I was like, oh, my God, I will never do this again. I was so <laughs> appalled by what happened. Did it seem like a dinner scene from Alien? <laughs> when the, 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 the alien just jumped out of the stomach. It was a fucking mess. I haven't seen Alien. <laughs> oh, okay. It's a great... I'm not into science fiction. But um, was, was it like Mad Max when he was... <laughs> I don't know. But I feel, I feel like I should mention, I just want to throw in at this point... For, very for, honest. For the listener, very honest. Very honest. That, uh, that later on, Luke was a... Um, directed some excellent pornography uh, <laughs> called uh, What Do Women Want? And also, Luke, when he was in a bad mood, used to have porn stars send him other porn stars to give him blowjobs. And I want to... There's a reason why I'm saying that. I'm not going to uh, elaborate on why I'm saying it. But it's important that the listener know that that Luke has gotten lots of blowjobs from porn stars. The, Good for uh, you. Yeah, that's that's worth knowing, Luke, for, because well, I'll tell you later. But um, also, I started masturbating in between third and fourth grade, and I've always been. Well, curious. we didn't ask you, but go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. But I'm, I, I know. But I'm, I'm curious. As, well, we don't have to just cover it now. Yeah. But w- I've always been a little mystified as to, I'm not any more sexual. Well, certainly not more sexual than Luke. Why? How? Can, like the, the idea of starting at sixteen to me is very confusing. It's, it's, it's very late. Late, yeah. late. quote and, unquote. Once again, um, same with Luke. 
I uh, I did it when I was 16 too, because my family is pretty repressive and like anything remotely like a pornography, if they ever caught me, I would have just beaten many times, you know. So um, I I really I didn't know any of that stuff because they kept that stuff away. You got to remember, we didn't have internet back then. If you didn't have access to pornographic magazine or tapes, and your family didn't talk about it, and if your friends didn't talk about it, Mm. you you were in the dark. I know it sounds strange. But it's common. Like when he was telling me he went to the uh, magazine store, I used to do that. But I usually what I do, grab a bigger, biggest magazine that is like Sportsman, this and that, put a Playboy in the, uh, in the between and turn around facing uh, everyone else, look like I'm looking at a sportsman while I'm looking through uh, Playboy and Penthouse. And, um, and every time a, some kid found a magazine, you know, it, w- it was just like, Candyland. Holy yeah. Grail. You know, yeah. kids will fight over, look at it. And we didn't, we didn't understand what's going on. And I'm from Japan. It was very confusing because whenever you see, you know, magaz- Japanese magazine, the, the genitalia area is covered by black uh, box, yeah. penis and vagina. Oh, so I was thinking as a kid, like, when, when do I grow up? When do I get my black box? <laughs> <laughs> Not, no, you know, because we're so ignorant. And uh, to, to this day, in many Asian countries, they don't have sex education. These are not thoughts. So, Yes, to any kids these days are very sophisticated. I I wasn't. Here's the thing, though, too, if I may add. Um, as a girl, and feel free to tell us when you started masturbating. I was very young. I remember Mm. masturbating at four and five. And I remember. Did your dad help you? (laughs) Oh God, no. But what an asshole! I didn't even. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I can only imagine. Go ahead. But sometimes I gave him a hand. No. Um, Uh, There you go. No. Um, But it's. It, what I learned later was that it's a common response to rage and anxiety. It's a self-soothing technique. And women or girls, especially women, you have a clitoris. So mm-hmm. the purpose of a clitoris is for it, is pleasure. That's it. That's so what I hear. From who young has time? Who has mm-hmm. time? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who can find that shit? Anyway? Yeah. When I was four, I found it. And I would abuse the shit out of it <laughs> because it made me feel so much better. And I grew up with an alcoholic father. And not to get too much about my own family life. But I started at a very young age um, because masturbation was also a way for me to soothe myself Mm -hmm. and to get out. And I didn't see porn or anything like that until I don't even know how old I... I remember the first porn I saw, actually, was when I was like five or six with my brother. We found a gay porn magazine. Was it Playgirl? Playgirl magazines in the mm. back in our backyard in the trash can because the guy who lived in the back house was gay mm, mm, mm. and there, I saw a massive cock and I was like oh my god it's so disgusting so I would masturbate to women like the thought mm. of yeah which is a shame and I'm, I'm totally not gay but yeah. <laughs> but I think women are sexy and I totally I mean that's yeah. a whole yeah. other topic but um, it actually scared me when I saw a penis for the first time because it was just like ah, what is that ah, it's scary Anybody um, have an erection right now? <laughs> <laughs> that's really good. Don't show me, please. Um, but just uh, that's why I wanted to know how old you were because, and I grew up in a very traditional household where s- sex is you don't have sex until you're married. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about it. There's no education about it. But for me, it was like my own little secret and it was my way to just uh, to s- escape life and also to feel good about myself. But I knew there was so much shame around it from yeah. an early age that I couldn't tell other people about it. And I especially could not get caught doing <laughs> it. So you didn't know why there was shame, but you knew there was shame. Oh, I yeah. felt that from an early age. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I yes. felt like I, my, I was masturbating in between third and fourth grade, so eight, eight or nine, to Lauren Angerman, mm-hmm. who's out there now. She's an Orthodox Jew. <laughs> and she and she's married and she has a lovely a lovely family 
and and she was and I was masturbating to her and I, I remember I, I I really had intense emotional and sexual feelings for her and um, I, I couldn't have stopped myself if I wanted to mm-hmm. um, I wasn't ashamed but I also didn't like getting caught which happened periodically but but um, uh, yeah you couldn't with wild horses you couldn't have stopped me from masturbating to Lauren Lauren right. if you're out there I'm, sti- still I'm, I'm still I'm still interested <laughs> I'm still interested I know you're married Luke I'm, is I'm open-minded right <laughs> yeah okay, okay. Right. so, so, so you so, masturbated for the first time and then you stopped for how long until you masturbated again the, the next day but, <laughs> uh, but I didn't know how to do it yeah and so I treated it like a stick trying to rub two sticks <laughs> yeah. to create fire. so I so you remember a boy scout so yeah. I was like rubbing my penis like like a stick and I was rubbing the skin off it and it was bleeding yeah. raw. but I had to get that feeling again and so I was like I would gut through the pain to get that feeling again and but after a few weeks I found that like a gentle tug you know, just like a gentle tug. Go, so go back to bleeding. What is that thing with the Jesus? Uh, um, Crucifixion? No, when you have a sign. Oh, stigmata. Uh, yeah, stigmata. Is that, that kind of like uh, a yeah, dick? Yeah, it was like a stigmata, except for the bleeding was on my penis. Okay. <laughs> and it was just off on your hands. Except no cross and okay. rubbing the penis. The hand of yeah. Jesus hit you. Okay. Um, <laughs> so this is a, this, you know, I didn't, I didn't have anybody to talk to because I would get hit. So I stopped. Don't even bring it up. When they catch me with stuff, I get uh, I get hit. <laughs> in fact, when I was in junior high school, Hotloft Junior High School in Lakewood, Washington, my uncle had a stacks of Playboy. I I went, I took it to school, and I was selling porn. I I wasn't like adult businesses like early on. Like, I I was broke, so I was like selling them. So so it's like, so I guess I was really meant you to st- be. You started very young. Very young. Um. So you these these are the, your experience in high school. And were you a happy kid in high school, or you're not, or no? I, I, at the core of an addiction or underneath an addiction is an mm-hmm. intimacy disorder. So for me, porn and masturbation is an escape from the, the dislocation, disconnection, mm-hmm. and and chronic depression that I yeah. have, have in my life. So I would get high when I would look at porn, yeah. and I'd collect the magazines and I'd stash them in the in the bush, so that as I'd walk home from high school, mm-hmm. I'd you know go visit the magazines for an hour, get high, get off, and go home and go. Did they ever catch life. you with that in high school? No, no, I never never got yeah. caught. When my parents were gone, I'd bring the magazines home and I'd yeah. spread them out across the living room, yeah. and mm-hmm. I'd like have an orgy with like fifteen mm-hmm. different centerfolds. I did the same thing, and I'd like not you know four times in an afternoon. My my friend, <laughs> I st- yeah. My, my, <laughs> when my wife was when I was married, when I was wife was yeah. in town, I was you know four times is nothing. My my <laughs> friend Tanner Manu, he's a comedian friend of mine from Washington. He's half Samoan and uh, half English, and, <laughs> and 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 most of the Samoans are Mormon. But um, so his dad was li- his grandfather was living in Samoa, and he converted to Mormonism. And when the the the, the uh, uh, chief of the island found out. They basically gave him him ultimatum, which is either he renounced the religion or they're ready to burn him and his family and the whole home down. And I think they burned down the house. Oh. And they're related. I'm not kidding. He they're, has a huge penis. Uh, what's his name? Taylor does. Yeah. Sorry, go on. He's he's. That's what he looks at you. No, no. So so they're literally going to put him. I think if I remember on the pole, like savages, literally like savages, and his grandfather literally say no so they they 
they stopped at the end of it, uh, tail end no. of it. <laughs> but but they were, he was ready to die for religion. So, you know, I'm, I didn't grow up in a religious background, but when I do meet, when I hear stories like yours and your dad, and like, we, not, we, we are social animal. We like to be part of things. Aristotle said that we are social animal. We are political animals. We want to be part of things, you know? Oh, it's one of our basic needs. The basic needs. And for, you know, whenever I hear stories like this, it's hard for me to believe. I just hear, I'm, I'm, I'm 43, so I have, I've heard so many of these stories. Like, I just have to say, it's true. That, like, when you believe something like that, they're literally ready to, to die, die to and die have their whole loved ones because <laughs> Tana's father said, like, I'm just a kid. Like, why am I dragging into this? You know, I don't, I don't want to die for it. But, yeah, it's whether it's under Soviet Union, people who knew the punishment is death for yeah, believing God. Yeah, your social God. identity is Yeah, is so I don't know what to say because on one hand, your father is a very principled man. I obviously believed it that strongly. But on the other hand, God, there's my crude practical side is like, ah, just let it, let it go, you know, like... Well, principles are very dangerous. Principles yeah. can blind you to, to, to decency and to, to the spirit of whatever law it is you're trying to protect them. I think Luke has been kind of, has suffered for that. Mm-hmm. Being, you know, being very principled as his father is has cost Luke uh, tremendously in his life, as well as his father. Um, I, I don't, I don't, principled to me from my childhood has always been not really a positive word. I see. It's a it's a word that's fraught with danger, and I and I think that that Luke's like Luke probably would would get that a bit. So when when you graduated from high school, did you leave? You just didn't want to be hanging out with your parents. You I, I left for a year and I went back to Australia, but because ah. I was still lacking in social skills, I yeah. still was near the bottom of the social pecking order. Yeah, and that means do people want to be around you or not? Yes. So social isolation is just another word for death. Yeah. It's like a, it's, you're the walking dead. Yes. You're socially isolated. So I, I went back to Australia for a year, but that didn't transform my social status. I came back. I lived with my parents, and uh, I looked for things to throw my energy into. So I went into radio, but what kind of radio shows were they? I just did the news. I was I a see. news reporter, and and then I decided I want to become an academic. I want to become an economist, and so I I studied the math, I studied the calculus. So I got ready to transfer to UCLA to become an economist. And one day, can I, I stop you? Was like that's very interesting to me. Very interesting because my former boss, John Staliano. Pornographer, but also economist. He went to UCLA too to be an <laughs> economist. John Luke would have been a way better economist than John Sagliano. Oh, I'm, sure, I'm sure. I wouldn't. I wouldn't hire John Sagliano to keep track of like if I was having my car washed. Yes. I'd to keep track of the numbers for that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Luke, I think Luke he was a good economist. But yeah, okay. So obviously, you know, you're a very smart guy. So you went to UCLA. Then what happened? Well, what happened is that one day I woke up with what seemed like a bad case of the flu, mm-hmm. but it didn't go away, and in fact. Much of my life died that morning in February 1988. I had no idea what was happening, but I got crippled with what was later diagnosed as chronic fatigue syndrome. So I basically spent the next six years in bed. I had to drop out of university, and my life just crashed and, and died as I knew it. Eventually, I managed to find some medication that helped me make it like a 50% or a two-thirds recovery. Yeah. What was that? What kind of medication? Uh, Nardil, N-A-R-D-I-L. It's one of the... Uh, it helps when everything else doesn't help, yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically. Did they put you on antidepressants? I tried all sorts of different antidepressants, but then it was Nardil that, that turned me around. Mm. And if you go to the Wikipedia entry for Nardil, it says it, you know, it helps with uh, basically when all other things don't help. 
Hmm. Um, did it give you energy? Was it a stimulant? It, it did. It did. Uh, it did give me energy. It gave me a tremendous appetite for for sweet things because I, I like I'd gone down to like 110 pounds on a six foot frame. Jesus. Oh my god! And so oh. when I went on the Nadil, I started gaining you know 10 pounds a month. Good. And and within 110. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. It, it was if too he, painful to lie on my side. Oh, I bet. Six foot, 110 pounds and it was painful to lie on my side. Oh my if you want to hear another discussion of Nardil, if you read Darkness Visible by William Styron, he, he talks about Nardil at length. Oh. Um, yeah. The so problem go. with Nardil for me was that it diminishes your inhibitions. And I didn't have many inhibitions <laughs> yeah. to begin with. So. <laughs> Hello, porn world. Here comes Luke. <laughs> so on the one hand, it enabled me to resume much of a normal life. On the other hand, I had no inhibition. So mm-hmm. I, I'd moved to Los Angeles and I was embracing Orthodox Judaism and I was going to synagogues, but I was like hitting on girls in the most inappropriate ways. I was taking my, my sacred fringes and I was like <laughs> twirling them around. Luke, Luke's, them wa- around. Luke's waving his seat around and like now like they're they're like they're a huge <laughs> penis. Like you're not supposed to do this. this oh, no, 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 <laughs> and I've, I've heard stories about how gross I was, and, and I don't fully remember this one incident, but apparently at a Friday night Shabbat dinner, I, put, I found this girl in the kitchen alone, and I put my hands on her with, without her permission, and then I kept calling her for some reason. <laughs> and whenever she recalls this to this day, I hear that she cries. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me, then you jerk off to but, that. But, but let me let me just say one thing in case Luke has put, has put himself in, made himself sound creepy or something. Luke got a lot of the JJ, and one woman I spoke to said women should have to pay Luke for sex wow. that he's that good. So so despite the stories that he's telling, Luke got a lot of uh, vagina, and women enjoyed uh, oh, sure, giving vagina, it to him. But no, no, whatever. Well, yeah, the, the woman who told me they should but, pay for it was orthodox. But look, yeah. I, I'm still a little... Um, I, have to, I have to pee-pees. Okay, come back. Um... How did the interest in Judaism start from UCLA? Well, I was sick. Remember, yeah, I was you were really sick. sick. Okay. And so I was looking for a way to make sense out of life because okay. everything that I'd known had been destroyed by my illness. Right. And so I encountered this Jewish talk show host named Dennis Prager on the radio. Mm-hmm. And due to my own complicated relationships with my father, I've always been looking for a father figure. Yes. I've always sought out older men as mentors. Yes. And... More than that, I've always been searching for rescue. Right. Like I'm like a love addict. I'm just seeking someone to come along and rescue me from the misery of my life. Mm -hmm. And when I just heard Dennis Prager's voice, this deep, resonant, powerful voice, I just love powerful people. I love powerful men, Mm -hmm. powerful women. I don't have sex with powerful men, but I just want to connect with them because I feel like they can rescue me. So just like listening to Dennis Prager and the things he said, I felt like this could transform my life, and I became excited about Judaism. I said, "Okay, this will give me." Is, is that a religious life. radio talk? He, he talks about religious and secular topics. I see. So I, I was excited by everything that he had to what say. What did you connect with Judaism that you felt would improve your life? Well, you at the time, I was really into Marxism, and I thought mm. Marxism was the way to make a good world. But then Dennis Prager presented Judaism as this step-by-step detailed system mm-hmm. for morally educating people, and that's how it would make a good world. Yes. So rather than trying to change the economic system, which was Marxism, which would supposedly create goodness, 
I saw Judaism had a more realistic attitude that people are not basically good and that everybody needs to be morally educated and yes. refined. And I said, wow, that makes sense. And this is the way to make a better world, not Marxism, not communism. This is the way moral education and, and the Torah and, and this system of, of uh, laws that, that Judaism has and, and the, the strong intellectual tradition that the, the Jews have developed and, and I found Jewish culture fascinating, Jewish history. Yes. And I just became absolutely mesmerized. And I said, wow, if I pour myself into this, I'll be able to let go of my porn demons mm-hmm. and my sex demons. Yes. And I'll be able to let go of my depression and yes. my misery, my dislocation disconnection from other people my yes. my messed up relationship with my family with my parents with right. my father i'd be able to let all that go and be reborn as a jew and create a new life where i will connect with people and learn to bond and create something good and holy so in, in the 20s you spend studying judaism yeah. i see and so i totally embraced judaism but what happened was i was still very isolated and I had this overwhelming conviction that there were answers out in the world for my illness and for my problems that I probably wouldn't find on my own. So mm-hmm. I started placing a lot of singles ads. Yeah. And I and I knew that about one percent of women are mesmerized by me. Yes. I knew that. So one percent? Where yeah. did, where does that number come from? It's just my life experience. <laughs> so it was simply a numbers game. I yeah. just had to answer as many ads as possible and place as many ads as possible to try to cast my net as wide as possible. This is before the internet. This is like 1992, 93. Mm-hmm. And I'm living at home with my parents, trying, knowing Were they living in Los Angeles at the time? No, this is in Northern California. Okay, okay. And it's isolated and I'm so lonely. I just want to connect. And I connected with this like 20-year-old Jewish woman who had E-cup breasts. Mm-hmm. And I was so religious at Perfect. the time. Perfect. <laughs> e- wait, did you say e- E-cup? E-cup. So she put E in a Jew. A lot of Jewish women have are, are okay, I'll just And then you put cum in her eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was really, re- I was so religious at the time, I wouldn't yeah. even shake hands with women. <laughs> but, but uh, when I, the second time she came to visit me, the first time I was pretty righteous. Second time she came to visit me, I picked her up at the bus station, mm-hmm. and as we were driving home, I said, "Tell me about all the times that you've been raped." <laughs> yeah. that, what? Yeah. that was your opening question? Yes. Well, she, yeah. No wonder it's only 1%. <laughs> so, so, so what happened? No, this girl was very rapeable, it seemed like. <laughs> because of her large breasts. I didn't, there was just something. You need to cover, put a condom on your microphone. Oh, yeah, where is that? Um, so it seems like... I'm every, gl- no, no, no. I, I'm glad you said that because I, I've gotten trouble on stage, but off stage too because... It's such a horrible thing to say, but I don't know how many times, Luke, I will meet a woman. I'm like, I don't even know her. I just barely meet her, and I'm already mentally mouth-fucking her. You know what I mean? Like, Well, this poor girl, she would, like, a guy would take her into his car out in the parking lot of her high school. Yeah. And she'd think, oh, this is nice. He likes me. And then he would grab the back of her head and force it down onto him yeah. and force her to give him a blowjob. Yeah. Or another time, she and a, the neighborhood boy, when she was like just 12 years old, they, they broke into her father's porn collection and started watching Debbie Does Dallas. And the next thing she knows, this, this little boy is grabbing her by the back of her head yeah. and uh. forcing her to give him a blowjob. And so, and another time at a party... Wait, wait so did you, did you know, because sometimes I, I pick up on that energy. I'm, I think I'm put above average in that. So you felt that energy from her, right? Like, 
something must happen to her. Well, she happened to mention that she'd been raped. Oh, okay. So then I needed to know yeah. every oh, single instance when, yeah. when she'd been raped. So How old was she at this time? She was like 20. 20. Okay. And so I was so primed now after she told me all these different stories. But she said if I raped her, she'd scream. So I let her, she went to bed. Yeah. I went to bed in my room. The next morning I got up, I gathered some paper towels. I gathered a condom. Yeah. I like padded into her room and I just started caressing her. Yeah. And I said, how does that feel? And she said, I wish it was your cock. And then I like, away I went. <laughs> and it was like magnificent. It was only the second woman that I'd been with in my life. But my first girlfriend, the first woman, she was only an A cup. So like this, I climbed the ultimate mountain. I was like with an <laughs> E cup. It was like such abundance. She was only five foot tall. Mm -hmm. She was like all breasts. Yeah. And I was like right on top of them. And I was just like going to town. And then when I was finished, we went out. I was making a breakfast and she, she turned away from me and she said, Luke, what color are my eyes? No. <laughs> and I said, they're, they're green. They're so, white now. <laughs> said, no, they're brown. Wow, good answer. <laughs> Brown's the default. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you see straight and into her soul. You don't oh, know the shit like happened. the color. Well, were you right? No, no I was wrong. <laughs> is any man ever right about that question? But, but two is the loneliest number. When you've only been with one woman, sex yeah. is so sacred and so special, you mm. can see yeah. how you could just go with that one woman for the rest of your life. Yeah. But now I'm off to the races. Yeah. Now suddenly I know what it's like to have sex with two women. Yeah. And I see that this isn't just something that has to be sacred and special. This is something that can be fantastic. Yeah. And so I'm just, I'm off to the races. I'm just sleeping with every woman that I can. You never got hookers though. No, never right. got hookers. And also because I'm so needy. Because yeah. I'm, I'm sick and, and, and my life has fallen apart. And I'm like, I find out, you know, if I can have sex with women, I can also get yeah. their heart and I can suck them dry of nurturing and sucker. And then one woman takes me to a psychiatrist who gets me on the Nadio, which turns my life around. And so you know, other women give me other gifts and, you know, take care of me in various ways. And so I'm trying to like fill myself up and catch up on all the life that I've missed, the six yeah. years in bed, the, the, the dislocation and disconnection that I've yeah. suffered all my life. I'm just trying to make up for that by getting inside as many women as I can. Did it work? It did to some extent. It really, it, it fulfilled, really some, yeah. fulfilled something very deep. It's like, yeah. you know, okay, if I die now, I know what it's like to experience the keenest pleasures and, and with them, like an emotional intimacy, you get to know someone yeah. more intensely in you know, one night than you would in six months of non-sexual mm -hmm. dating. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was like, I finally got to like experience the very marrow of life. <sighs> yeah. That's a great quote. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I'm a cuddler, but I still feel the same way. That's, that, that's, that, that welcoming thing, the welcoming, the physical sexual welcoming is, is kind of, there's a reason that the, the, the French call, um, I don't know how you say it in French, but the orgasm. Oh, is there a little, little death. death? A little death, yeah. I read that article. Yeah, that's right. Le petit mort, something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Because <laughs> that it means the a little, little death. The a little, little death, yeah. Yeah, or, 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 uh, or the little shit. But, but, the <laughs> but the little death, no, it is like you're, you're kind of, after that kind of welcoming from a woman, part of you is ready to die at that moment. You've gotten much of I, I, you know, I knew I was I could relate it to you, Luke, but like more we talk, I, I understand because when you initially didn't know anything about pornography and introduced to it, yeah, it's just like a high. You you go crazy, you know, and um I was I, I did that phase for a long time. 
then of course you get into more hardcore pornographic stuff. I remember when I turned 18, I was attending El Camino Community College at the time, and I remember um, my friends were still in high school. Oh no, I, I think I was 18, I was still in high school. And we would drive to these warehouses in LA, and uh, my friends have to stay outside because they're still 17. And I would go in and buy a bunch of por pornographic material, and, and um, yeah, I was heavily, heavily into that, and this is like late 80s. And but there's a point where you get tired of it, porn. Then I was in the hooker phase for a long time, and like that shit is just exciting. Absolutely, you go, you go, you go crazy. I went really crazy last. 12. But, but, but I do, Yoshi, do you feel like? I mean, does that mean? Do you feel like you're chasing a high, like? With that, and then you have to take it to another level. That's why you went. Into I don't know. I'm, I'm sure. Asking. I'm. I'm. I'm right. still interested in the hooker phase, but eventually, I know myself. Even that will get old. I'm. I'm just like not worried. But what I'm gonna. What I'm gonna do next after hooker because. <laughs> you're re you're reaching a limit there. Of le legality. Yeah. Children. Animals. I don't. No. I know myself enough that I wouldn't be interested in that. But uh, I hope. I hope. That hooker things last long enough where I re I reach the age, like sixty or something, where I know I'll probably start not being interested in sex. Because yeah, yeah. Well, what about monogamy? I mean, does that <laughs> ever cross just, your mind? Just throw like, out something hey, really crazy. Really, <laughs> I mean, that's ridiculous. Come on. <laughs> no, when I was younger, I used to describe myself as a, as a my sexuality. People ask me, "Are you gay or straight?" I'd say I was a monogamist. But um, but the, but the, you know the other thing is that people don't know. This is kind of irrelevant, I guess, to the conversation. Is that but if you when you start having those porn things, see what I discovered at th third, fourth grade. That there are girls out there who are just as fucked up as we are, and are just as sexualized by their own traumatic experiences as we are. And yes, we are. Yeah. And so you, <laughs> so you can at that age you don't even have to start with pornography. You can start with real girls. Yeah. Um, you just have to to to. To spot them, <laughs> you have to find their daddy issues. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Damage you have points. to find out girls who really have, are damaged from daddy issues, <laughs> and then you're then you're in. So look, um, new discoveries. This is exciting, and it's normal. And the only difference with you, with the rest of the world, is they're, they're, you're a lot very honest about it. So you're you're interested in women. Do you, were you interested mostly Jewish women? It was. Mainly Jewish women, okay. but uh, maybe sixty percent Jewish women. Okay, was that a coincidence, or you sought them? No, I, I sought Jewish women because mm -hmm. that was the new direction for my life. I was all about things Jewish, and I wanted to taste as much of Jewish culture as I could. <laughs> <laughs> now, that was brilliant! That was, a, that was a wonderful, wonderful. So uh, you were, you're, 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 did you convert to Judaism? At the, I, I converted to Judaism. Can I ask you something? What was your dad's reaction when he heard about it? How did he find? How did yeah. your dad? hear about it this is you know what it is i mean this is maybe a silly example but i can't imagine um if you're a, a massive boston red sox fan <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the dad is like a massive red sox fan and the dad the, the son said dad i have a news for you i'm a new york yankee fan i mean it sounds betrayal it, it sounds so frivolous but you go that part of the country it's a it's a serious business over there serious I think this is even more serious. Yes, I, I realize. <laughs> yeah, I realize that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about celestial Red Sox versus. And before Luke answers, let me also just say this: becoming a, a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, he converted Orthodox Judaism. It's not like becoming 
a Muslim where you just have to say like Muhammad alhamdulillah watashi wa o kama this. You have to actually. <laughs> you have my name went from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali. He just, say, he, said, he just said, I'm gay in Japanese, but go ahead. But <laughs> I did. But first I said, welcome, Muhammad. Yeah. But, um, but you, you, it's a really a rigorous, difficult process. You have to really put a ton of effort and energy into becoming an Orthodox Jew. And, and Luke did. So this wasn't just some little fly-by-night Before thing. Before you answer, this is my impression. Like, if I was your dad, like, it just seemed like an ultimate betrayal. That that I mean, it's embarrassing because you it are. Would, I would, as a parent, you see, I would feel, or I would project that the parent would feel like they were a failure almost, yeah. as this ordained it's, huge it's, it's, general commission, whatever yeah. of the Seventh Day Order, and your son is a Jew. <gasps> the yeah, shame. Yeah, it's a huge, it's a huge the, rejection. Yes, yeah, a like, Jew who betrayed Jesus. Um, you know, but what did I do wrong though? Too, yeah, I mean, as a parent, as a teacher who preach the congregation. I mean, it's a disgrace before his congregation. Yeah, yes. it's it just like he can't even convert his. I mean, he his. I mean, I don't. I can't even imagine what that like. Right. So I was chronically ill when I became yeah. interested in Judaism, and my life had fallen apart. So my parents couldn't really attack it because it was like the only thing that I was holding on to. Since Je Jesus could heal you, well, they said. You know, if you believed in Jesus, maybe he'd heal you. But mm -hmm. they could see I was just all about Judaism, and I'd wear a yarmulke around the house, and oh my, my God. fringes around the house. I'd answer oh their, God. I'd answer their phone, Shalom. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> I, I grew a beard, and uh, and one day I came home after I'd passed uh, the Jewish law court to become a Jew in late 1992. And, and I was in the kitchen, my dad was reading a book, and I said, Dad, I, I've passed my Jewish conversion this evening. And he looked up from his book, and he said, well, they're certainly not like the Seventh-day Adventists out there proselytizing, because he knew how hard it'd be for me to... Uh, and remember, I was still... Wait, he knew how hard it'd be for you to what? To convert to Judaism. Yeah, very difficult. How many times I'd been turned down and right. kicked out. And yeah, yeah. Just like your dad. Hmm? Well, no, well, but... Well, in the sense of your dad's been kicked out of... Of church and right. right, right. But he really—it took a lot of tenaciousness for you to tenacity for you to right, uh, right. And he thought that was a bitter pill, mm -hmm. and he worried about my heavenly salvation. But it was nothing to when I became known as the the king of porn. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the ultimate humiliation. That was like one thousand times more humiliating to my family than my. But let, let me ask you, what what did other Jewish people think when they found out your background? That's got to be surprising to them, right? I mean. Well, many don't care. Oh, they don't? Yeah, many don't care. A few are interested, but yeah. most Jews aren't particularly interested in other religions. They don't. No, he's talking about the pornography. No, 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 no. I'm, no, talking, no. I'm, I'm talking about. Christian. When he, no, 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 no. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm talking about what, what did the Jewish community think about you? Knowing your background, that's that's what's my that was like. My some people were interested, uh -huh. but it wasn't really a big deal. Like Jews aren't impressed by conversions. They're not. Okay. They're not seeking converts. They're not impressed by converts. They're not seeking sa salvation for sinners. It's right. it's not like Christianity without right. Jesus. It's a completely different. Because Jews, Jews don't have missionaries, right? Right. Jews, Jews don't, don't have missionaries. <laughs> they're not seeking converts. They're not. Yeah. Yeah. They're not impressed. They don't have missionaries, but they have Mossad. So <laughs> that's right. We will no, no. But seriously, I mean, even when when visiting my, I have cousins in the settlements who are like, and I remember saying something. Oh, sorry if I'm doing this, and he's like, basically like, I don't give a shit what you do. Like, like they, they don't they don't care in the same way that Christians do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jews, Jews are difficult to impress. They, yeah, they, wow. They don't care. Yeah. 
Well, that makes sense because for thousands of years, people tried to kill you guys. You guys are able to manage to survive right. each time. So, um, yeah, if we had a hissy fit over every single one of them, it would have been rough over time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Like, you know. So you got to roll with it. So you convert it. So let me t tell me the period between when you convert it and once, once you decide to get into adult business. What was that period like? Yes. Okay, so I converted at the end of 1992. Okay. And I, I get well in the beginning of 1994. Right. I moved to Los Angeles. Okay. And I'm kind of searching, trying to create a new life because I'm, I'm hot. Why, why L.A.? Uh, because Dennis Prager said he might have work for me if I moved to LA. Oh, you contacted him? Yeah, I met him in person and he said, if you come to LA, I might have work for you. Okay. So I came to LA. Wow. And he kind of <laughs> kind of saw how screwed up I was and there wasn't any work. But how did you connect with him? Because you have to understand, for those who may not know, Dennis Prager, growing up as a Jew in Los Angeles, is like a very authoritative is he, voice. Is he a neocon? No, well, forget his politics. He's, he's, a very, he's a very influential Jewish voice. And um, when Luke told me he had all these uh, contacts with Dennis Prager, it was kind of like, well, ha wow, how, how, how did that happen? Like, well, I, I'd call his show every week and, and argue with him. And <laughs> <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, how, that's how you create a uh, bill of friendship, arguing with that's someone. That's usually how I have sex with men. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and then I would, I would write him letters, and he, he called me once at home, and he said, if you're ever in L.A., like you can sit in on my radio show. Interesting when you say letter, and, and because these younger kids don't understand, people back then actually wrote letters. Yeah, yeah. Put stamps <laughs> and send it in. Okay. <laughs> Fucking barbarians. And yeah. so when I met Dennis Prager in person the yeah. first time, he he I'd written him letters about how he changed my life, and and he'd written to people. I was handing out his materials right, left, and center, and he'd yeah. written to people. Now, anyone's a friend of Luke Ford's, a friend of mine. I finally got to meet him in person, and he says, uh, "You know, it feels so good to meet you. To know that you know you're carrying on the work that yeah. you know, something happened to me that you'll carry on these ideas that I believe in so passionately. And if you're in LA, I think I might have work for you. And so I would have followed him anywhere. Okay, I got to throw in something right now. Yes, the fact that Luke had that impression on Dennis Prager is really something to me because in my experience, I've met him twice. Dennis Prager is an asshole. Is like, it? Yeah, really. It, it, this is just my experience. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. But but the fact that that Luke made that kind of impression on Dennis Prager is is quite something because because again he's a very prominent figure in in Los Angeles Judaism and is is from what I've seen he's a fucking prick. So the fact that Luke Luke is he still influential now? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. He, well, what would you argue with him about? Well, the best way to express it is with a song. <laughs> I don't have as many friends because I'm not as pretty as I was. I kick myself at times because I've lied. So I'll have to learn to stand my ground. I'll tell them I won't be around. I'll move on over to your town and hide. And you'd be the captain and I'll be no one. And you can carry me away if you want to. And you can lay low just like your father did. And if I tread upon your feet, you just say so, because you're the captain and I am no one. I tend to feel as though I owe one to you. I've handed all my efforts in. I've searched here for my second wind. Is there somewhere here to let me in? I asked. So I slammed the doors. They slammed at me. I figured out my destiny. 
I know wh- where I'm going at last. So it was like he was the, the captain. Like he was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the first time somebody actually sang a song. That's, 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 that's beautiful. beautiful. That's the first song and the first song to Dennis Prager. First, we had know. a rap last week. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, my God. Andy Milianakis. Yeah. I prefer this. I prefer this. Yeah. Uh, wow. That touched my soul. Wow. All right. So, yeah. y- so there's obviously, Joey, you're a very likable guy for whatever reason. Extremely likable. Like, extremely likable. Didn't work out. Extremely But there's something about you. <laughs> you connected with him. <laughs> what? <laughs> Nothing. Sorry. Continue. So. so you like Didn't work out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like two pieces of puzzle. Um, Luke and Dennis clicked you know yeah yeah so you move down here thinking he has a job for you yeah. and he doesn't yeah that, that that's d- a very typical la story isn't it whether you're <laughs> yeah, yeah. whether I, I can i can help you out yeah. i got whether it's actress yeah, yeah. actor yeah. writer yeah. in the movie business yep. yeah comic but in my same fucking okay. story about la but in my experience dennis prager is good for his word i have had some interactions with him where he said he'd do something and he and he, and he came through on it so I believe Luke when he said there was some kind of second thinking that happened after he met Luke. Because <laughs> um, I arranged, I arranged for, for Dennis Prager to participate in a debate. He was as good as, he, he, he did everything he said he would do. So he's not just in a particular L.A. like kind of freak. Well, the way you said it earlier, Luke, it seemed as if when he met you, the way you said it in this kind of self-deprecating way was that you were too crazy or something like that. Something negative about yourself that he said, ah, I don't want to. You don't need to be working with me. What was that? Did I read into that too much, or was there something there that you felt changed I, his I, opinion of you when he met you in person? Yeah, I think once he started, I started spending more time. We went to the same synagogue, and I'd moved to LA, and I got to know him, his assistants, uh, spent some time, and I think he started to sense this is not someone I want to work. Though the the ostensible reason was, oh, I got slammed by these new. Uh, health insurance bills and I just can't hire anyone right now. Bullshit. Well, what what do you think that was? That I think he just, you know, when you sense that there's something off about someone. Well, what do you think that is off about you? I mean, you seem you don't I, seem like an off person. You seem very dedicated and passionate about someone who pursued this as someone who well, your life was saved by this essentially. Uh, here, here. How here. does that come off as off? Okay, so the person who was running Dennis Prager's operation at the time was Mark Wilcox. And I, I'd met with Mark for two hours, and it went great. And then I called him and said, hey, Mark, Dennis said that I could sit in on his radio show. And Mark said, well, I, I, don't, I don't handle that. And I said, well, you know, Dennis, I, I pressed the point, and I, I rubbed Mark the wrong way. Mm. And... and that's when it suddenly went south. That was the breaking point. That was the who gets point. to sit in on Dennis's radio show? Nobody does. That's I, that's like yeah. unheard of. Wow. So I did get to sit in. Then I approached Dennis, and Dennis said, "Yeah, yeah, you know, talk to me. You know, what's a good day, and you know, come in." So I did get to sit in, but I think because I had that broken uh, conversation with Mark, um, suddenly there was no job offer forthcoming, and I was like waiting around for it to happen, and this bossy Jewish girl who'd come into my life kind of heard me talking and and she went and called the office and said hey this guy's waiting around for a job you oh, should let him God. know one way or another and so the next day i got a letter saying we can't hire you uh, first of all for, for you to have gotten anyone to have considered i mean to sit the, the offer to sit in on dennis prager's radio show 
huge. unheard of in my life. I've never, I, I never remember him having anyone just sit in on his radio show. That's huge. Second of all, bossy Jewish girl calling, telling them, you know, you put up or shut up. This is one of the reasons we avoid Jewish women. I know you don't have a choice anymore, but, but this is what they, this <laughs> or at is least nail them. And, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Diana, the E cup. As soon as I went off with someone else, she called Dennis Prager's office and told them that I was a user and abuser. <gasps> no, and she's trying to ruin your reputation. Yeah, and I noticed that everyone would go to Dennis Prager whenever they had any complaint about me. Like when I was a kid, they would go to my father. But because people knew that I venerated Dennis Prager now more than anyone, oh. as soon as they had a problem with me, they'd go to Dennis Prager and complain. Well, it it's not just because like, you venerated him. It's because you, you, you made an impression on him yeah. that no one else had made, clearly. I mean, he, he wasn't handing out invitations for people to sit on his fucking radio right. show. That's very, very unusual. So, if, so, sorry, so it doesn't work out. So what did you, you didn't move back. You stayed in L.A. No, I stayed in L.A. And I so thought, what did you do? I thought I need to write a book. Okay. And so I want to develop on some ideas that Dennis Prager has talked about briefly on how to be a good person. Mm-hmm. I want to write a whole book on how to be a good person. Okay. So I sent Dennis Prager a letter and say, hey, I'd like to develop on a handful of your ideas here and turn them into a book. Okay. How would you feel about that? And he wrote me back saying, please do not do that. So then I thought, hmm. What wait, wait, why do you think he said no? Well, I understand that people are protective of their ideas and they don't want someone else coming. Oh, I, okay. so I understood that. So I thought, hmm, okay, what's another topic? I'm really interested in porn. So I went to the... To the how, how did that happen? Like you went from one extreme to another. <laughs> well, I, I knew I was still interested. And Dennis Prager had recommended books by a UCLA psychiatrist, Robert Stoller, mm-hmm. books that he'd written on the dynamics of sexual excitement. Right. So as I was researching Robert Stoller's books, I found that he'd written two books on the porn industry. Ah. So I thought, if Dennis Prager venerates this man who has written books on the porn industry, right. then I too can be someone that Dennis Prager has high regard for. You know, I'm totally within the Dennis Prager vision. But did he yeah. like the book that you ended up writing? I'm not sure he's a big fan. I see. Were you just looking for a father figure? <laughs> yeah, I was I was looking for a father figure, but more than that... I was don't looking, we all? I mean, yeah, don't, I don't, agree. Don't, don't, don't men do that now? Uh, I was looking for rescue. Yeah, like someone to, yeah, save Some, yeah, or someone like if I just like followed what he said, mm-hmm. I hoped that would rescue me. Mm-hmm. But it didn't didn't shift my emotional addictions. Though at the time I didn't realize I had any emotional addictions. And I, I actually did read the book. It was very very helpful. And it give, you know because when you work in adult business, it's not like you could go community college and take porn one hundred and one right. and learn every aspect <laughs> of merchandise business, marketing, and history of it. So. The way I learned was bits and here and there, but I didn't really have a one definitive work gives me the big picture of the adult business. And I, I and someone I always say in my our podcast, the amateur historian, I really really enjoyed it. Like I knew bits and pieces, but you filled us gaps that I didn't understand. Like I didn't understand the the the, the porn and mob uh, connection, and you did an excellent job and. Other performers that I, didn't, I wasn't really familiar, and this is a problem with I think a lot of the young new performers these days. They have no idea of the history of porn, and uh, all the men and women and transsexual who paved the way for no their, reverence uh, for tradition. No tradition at all. <laughs> no tradition at all. Well said. And um, that's why when I saw you, I was a little hesitant, but I wanted to talk to you when I saw you, and you know when I met Bob Chen. Those of you who don't know who he is, one of the. Uh, first Asian American pornographer who worked with John Holmes and like the, I, Martin, I, the Martin Luther King of the porn industry yeah I, I um, American community. I, I really studied he it had a and dream yes 
<laughs> wet One dream. Day, yellow he had a wet dream. Right. White people would join together to create pornography. Interracial porn? Yeah, yeah. interracial <laughs> porn. <laughs> Having sex with white women. That's really <coughs> what they need. <laughs> so this is amazing. So you went from one extreme to another. So, you But I thought it was all approved by Dennis Prager because mm-hmm. he did endorse Robert E. Stoller, this great UCLA psychiatrist. Yeah. He'd written a lot of books about the dynamics of sexual excitement and written two specific books on the pornography yeah. industry. So I thought I was just like following the footsteps of a great academic psychiatrist. And it wasn't anything remotely dirty or anything. Right. I thought it was interesting historically and... Um, it was a really, really interesting book, and it was a matter of fact, and um, I, I enjoyed it a lot. So how long did it take you to write that book? What was the name of the book again? A History of X, 100 Years of Sex and Film. Okay. It took a year. That's it. Wow. And then I started writing a blog on the porn industry, and as I became famous for, for writing on the porn industry... This is like 95, 96, when you started? Yeah, I started in late 95, and my my family became increasingly worried about me. Yeah. And so they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. I said, we'll pay for your flight back to Australia for a month if you'll consult with the doctors of our choice. Mm-hmm. I said, fine. So I went back, saw a bunch of doctors, and one of them was a psychiatrist. I mm-hmm. met with her for three hours, mm-hmm. and she gave my family this diagnosis that I had a narcissistic personality disorder slash histrionic personality disorder that I basically only related to other people for the feedback that they could give me about who I am, that mm-hmm. I had no sense of self, and that I was constantly relying on feedback, mm-hmm. and that I'd gone into writing about the porn industry because this would get me more attention than any other single thing that I could do. That's and the histrionic part is yeah. the one. You want to get public attention? Yeah. Oh, rec- okay. The narcissism and histrionic. It's, I see. It's, it's the same thing. So there's, there's plenty of that in the adult business, for sure. And so when I got that diagnosis, I, I read it and I realized there was truth to it. Mm-hmm. So I went back to psychotherapy. I'd had about a year or so of therapy at this point, but then I went back. And then about eight years in of psychotherapy, I was relaying my fantasies. And I was telling my therapist that like my favorite fantasies were of being a powerful person in Hollywood mm-hmm. that uh, women would have to have sex with right. to, to get ahead. And it was... Very, that's a very understandable fantasy. And it was precisely because they didn't want to do it because they were married. Yes. That, that <laughs> that's precisely is what made it so exciting yeah. to me. That for I'm them excited was just listening to it. Absolutely degrading. Yeah. And that they were mm. selling out their families and their husbands and yeah. their relationships. Where's Lilith? Well, why did she, is she gone for this? I, I offended she's, her. She's, she's in the bathroom. And, and, mm. and then my other favorite fantasy was having sex with my therapist mm-hmm. or with my teacher, like when I was 12 years old, yeah. because the teacher or the therapist would be putting their whole career on the line to yeah. have sex with me. And so is that very degradation, okay. that risk yeah. that made it so exciting to yeah. me. As I'm relaying my fantasies, my therapist says, wow, that sounds a lot like eroticized rage. I'd never heard uh-huh. that term before. And uh, what, what is that, what's the definition of that? Eroticized rage is the anger underneath sexuality. So it refers both to how you have sex, like an angry way that you have sex, mm-hmm. but also into the manipulation that you use to get sex. It means that you get off on breaking the rules. So for me, sex is most exciting if I imagine that I'm raping the woman. Right. So I'd have my girlfriend. Oh, just like the Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have my girlfriends tell me, no, no, no. Yeah. We'd have a safe word. The safe word would be Pittsburgh because they beat the Cowboys in two Super Bowls. In the yeah. <laughs> so, but we always had a safe word. And so it was always, we didn't get too crazy. I said, you know, don't, 
don't punch me, don't bite me, you know, no bruises, but just resist me, mm-hmm. you know, without doing any physical imagery. And so I'd have them say, you know, no, no, stop, stop, no, you're hurting me. Yeah. That's what gets me excited. Or I'd have a pretend to be my therapist yeah. and like sit on the couch there and ask me questions until I can't take it anymore. You know, after have to screw her or, you know, pretend to be my eighth grade teacher. Yeah. Like all these scenarios. And it was because they were wrong is what got me excited. And so when I was having regular sex, I was closing my eyes and imagining that I was getting with the clerk at Ralph's or mm-hmm. getting with my friend's wife or, you mm-hmm. know, all these other perverse fantasies. So I didn't realize that I was pursuing intensity in my sexual relationships rather than intimacy. And that was destroying the relationships. I'd never had a relationship that lasted much longer than a year. But you, see, you weren't pursuing then relationships with women who had the same problems. Because I remember I had a, my safe word was abracadabra, and it was the same kind of thing, and it had to be, (laughs) this was my initial, this was my first. Wait, is that an Arab thing? Like what's. Abracadabra? No, it's just, it's just a random word that, that Mm -hmm. she could use, but she never wanted to, this is my first long-term relationship. That's an awkward word. No, no, but yeah, that's, that's by the, the point. time you finish saying it, you know she's got a broken. Yeah, yeah, she's got a broken, broken rib, neck, yeah. broken neck. <laughs> but, but, but maybe that was the point. But, bro- uh, <laughs> but she, but she needed. She also couldn't be aroused unless she felt like she was being um, yeah, taken advantage of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, mm. yeah. No, I know a lot of women who cannot get aroused unless the scenario is perverse. Yes. So, but so then you, you yeah, you, we had incredibly hot sex. Right. Yes. But. The, it does not build intimacy. You're building mm. intensity. No, right, right. We had high intensity, but it's not building intimacy. You're not bonding two people. You have a okay, I had a girl. One of the girls, let me just <laughs> say. Be, 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 that's, Joey, before you... <laughs> God damn it! Before, yeah, 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 before yeah, you continue, yeah. because I, I keep hearing this word all the time, and I just take it for granted, but when you say intimacy... What does it mean? Like I, I have a, <laughs> I, I, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> okay, that's yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a. Oh, I know yeah. that's the like the, like if you're studying physics, atom is the basic block of universe. But I mean, you keep saying like. <laughs> you can't how, think- how, 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 why is it so important? Okay, okay. Yeah. Let Lalid handle this. <laughs> <laughs> he goes to the bathroom. Wait, wait, hold on. Before- mm-hmm. Okay, sorry, I'm sorry. Go well, ahead. intimacy is important because it No, but Yoshi no, doesn't know what it is. He's, 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 he doesn't understand what okay, it is. Okay, in- intimacy is basically... <laughs> 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 he laughing because, he's laughing because I'm really serious. <laughs> I know. Okay, um, intimacy is, is, is like a personal close connection. Right. You can um, build and... Uh, develop it doesn't, with it a doesn't, person it, it, it doesn't, that it doesn't. is beyond sexual impulse perversion mm-hmm. or any kind of other uh, desire that would be lucrative to another kind of um, so there's no money gratification. <laughs> Usually, don't need to pay for intimacy. Okay. Tough, tough to tough to make. But intimacy, intimacy is much money. more about an emotional, maybe mm-hmm. even intele- intellectual, spiritual connection. It's connecting with someone on a level that. Uh, is much more profound than uh, a gratification or impulse gratification, especially. But I mean, you, c- you can have intimacy with friends. Of course, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, there's yes, there's yes. so many variations and levels of intimacy. There's friends, lovers, of course, um, uh, teacher-student relationships. I mean, uh, parents and but, kids. But mm-hmm. Yoshi, I, I I can only speak for myself. But in my experience, you can absolutely have intimacy with friends. 
but there's an intimacy that a man can have with a single with another wo- with a woman or a woman with another woman well, or a man with another right. man. Right. Well, mm-hmm. the intimacy okay, that builds into a relationship mm-hmm. with sex mm-hmm. is usually the healthiest and most ideal way to have a relationship with someone of the opposite sex or the same sex if you're into that as well. Right. Um, that includes sex and includes emotional and, and it's the most powerful. But, 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 but I, I have to say, I do not come from a culture that really. Promote that. I don't I, think. I understand. I, yes. Yeah, okay. Okay. I have. I mean, it, it, it's it's silly as it might sound, but it's just such a really weird alien concept. Because I hope you, I hope Luke is taking a piss and not a shit because I really want him to to come back here because <laughs> because I, I there's things on this that yeah there he is yeah <laughs> this is, here's one of my challenges on intimacy and I'd like to to say this but but look before you continue and I want you to continue I would just basically said to Lily I come from a culture Japan where mm-hmm. intimacy is not a it's it's really not that. It's not. Inc- it doesn't seem like it's such a uh, important thing. It was not encouraged. So when I said, "What the heck is intimacy? Why is it important?" Well, it, it's silly as it might sound in the West. It, it I'm telling you. You <laughs> know what? It, 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 it doesn't sound silly. silly. It I sounds. Mm. It sounds soul destroying to me. Can I say? Can I say that? It, and that's it's what I do. I destroy souls. Most people. <laughs> don't know how to to form intimate relationships and mm-hmm. they think they know because they think through sex and through other kinds of ones if, if it was sex, that, that it's intimate if, but it's here's not. a here's a mind if, 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 much deeper than that mm-hmm. is is much more evolved than that and takes time mm-hmm. to build it's not something that just you you do it takes time yeah so that you're not alone in that because most people I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a sad about it well, just, uh, yeah. oh yes you are yes you are but i have a special mind fuck for you this is this is my situation with intimacy. For you have too much. No, no, you have too much intimacy. One more thing. Mm-hmm. One more thing. Important thing. Allowing yourself to be vulnerable is a big part of intimacy. Huge part of intimacy. Huge part of intimacy. I'm very vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. I could be homeless. Uh, not venereal no, no, no. disease. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Vulnerable. Not vulnerable. To, right. <laughs> no. Here, here's here's my uh, intimacy mind fuck. First of all, I need intimacy. I, I I in all my relationships, and and I can really only get it from. As much as I love my friends, I need it from a woman. Yes. And I need, like, really deep intimacy. I, I, I love intimacy. My problem is that sexually, I have the same... When Luke first started talking about eroticized rage, I, I had never heard the term before. But I immediately felt like I knew what he was talking about. Because mm-hmm. when I get aroused, it, it turns into... Well, I it to, seems not like to put too, head a point, yeah. uh, too, uh, to find a point on it. Sex and kind of violence and degradation are all kind of mixed together. Absolutely. And the, the, and the problem is, is that I need, but I also have this huge craving for intimacy. But sex is a very imperfect tool for getting at that intimacy because I, because I, I want to, because of the, you know, because I, <laughs> I want to destroy you as a human being once I'm aroused. <laughs> so <laughs> so, so I, it's, it's, it's very tricky because I, I, I want, you know, I don't know how to, I don't know what to do about those, but those have caused that that contradiction has caused a lot of problems in my life. Destroy your soul. When oh, I like that. Yes, yeah. That's that's <laughs> the part of my yeah. good, good sex life is is men who want to destroy you. Yeah, but I like I like to do it with like one man or an, or two at the most. I don't like doing that with strangers. My right. sense of intimacy comes from connecting with someone emotionally where we can build that kind of relationship where he's somewhat pseudo-raping me or like there is that dominant submissive feel to it and there is a little bit of degradation or a little bit of violence, but it's mostly tame. But underneath it all, I know there's love. 
So that's why <laughs> to, me, to me it's okay. That's that, how I that justify it. That sounds fucking great. It is, uh, it is, it's amazing. But like I said, but would I be able to do that with a stranger? No. Right. No, no way. Like I, I, you know, I've had, I've had the same lover for four years and I'll have another guy that I'll sleep with for like a year or two years. And I think it just, that to me makes it exciting. And that to me allows myself to be comfortable to be taken to that place because it is arousing to me too, to feel that kind of stuff. <sighs> <laughs> so going back, <laughs> sorry, look, so going back when you were started talking intimacy, go, uh, you know, I, I don't remember what, um, so as soon as I heard the term eroticized rage, okay. I, yeah. Yeah. I went, I went home and Googled the topic. Yeah. And I learned that it was a symptom of sex addiction. I see. And so I'd had several people tell me that it, they thought I was a sex addict, but mm. I never took it seriously. But yeah. as soon as I heard the term eroticized rage, that spoke to my deepest soul. And so as I researched eroticized rage, I learned that even if you express it in socially acceptable ways, such as I was doing within uh, monogamous relationships and everything yeah. was consensual and safe, that the rage was still like a cancer that was like eating away at my life and it would express itself in seemingly innocuous ways. But in my sense of humor, there's like a lot of rage underneath my sense yeah. of humor. I'm like putting people down. Yeah. And, and I realized that this was just poisoning my whole life. And it was poisoning the way I just interacted with ordinary people in ordinary days. And so I said, I better find myself a 12-step program. So my therapist recommended a particular 12-step program. There are about eight different 12-step programs for, for sex addiction. And I started going in June of 2011. But, 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 but you were still writing... Oh, when, when I, I quit writing on the porn industry in 2007. I so see. this is after I left the I porn see. industry. And uh, I'd, I'd, I quit, quit looking at porn. I got to the 12-step program, and I noticed that I was feeling sober, not just in the meetings, but coming out of them. Mm -hmm. And that, that was changing the way I related to people in ordinary life. And it was also changing my masturbatory fantasies. They weren't as, quite as nasty. I wasn't mm -hmm. quite as driven to want to destroy people in my, in my fantasies. And then as I kept working the program, I eventually completely stopped masturbation, which really was life-changing because I realized once I'd quit masturbating that I had been going through life kind of uh, collecting erotic scenarios yeah. to use in my masturbatory fantasies. And as I quit the masturbation, I was able to relate to women more as human beings yeah. instead of as, as objects. objects to use for my masturbatory fantasies. And it created a sense of calm and a sense of sobriety yeah. and kind of... Uh, brought a clarity to my life right. and so i realized that i that i had been using sex as, as a drug because when i would masturbate or have sex that would be the absolute highlight of my day and, mm -hmm. and still to this day even though i've been working the program still sexual things are the most tempting to me of anything that is still my drug yes that's the one that that drives me more than anything but as i developed increasing sobriety i was able to start feeling a little more at home and at ease with myself yeah. and with other people and and I realized that the the sex addiction and and the the porn addiction was was a mask it was just a a disguise for what I have at core as an intimacy disorder I was disconnected from myself and from other people and if you're pursuing things that are destroying your life it's a pretty good chance that you have an addiction so some people it's alcohol some people it's drugs gambling. some people it's food or gambling yeah. And for, for other people, it's porn and uh, masturbation uh, and, and, and the like. So as I, I calmed down I, and kept working the program, I've, 
I've been able to feel increasingly at ease with myself and mm-hmm. with other people, and I found it uh, transforming. Did you feel more love for yourself in your sobriety? Yeah. It, that is so difficult to talk about. Like the sex addiction is so easy to talk about, yeah. but the, the self-love is so hard to talk about because, because it's, it's, it's so a, intimate, right? It's so mm-hmm. intimate mm-hmm. and it's a cliche mm-hmm. in, in our society and, and I, I, I struggle with it. But what I'm trying to do is the things that I was looking through, through my love addiction, the thing mm-hmm. that I was wanting to be rescued the things that I wanted my, my love object mm-hmm. to do for me, I'm trying to learn to do for myself so that when I'm tired, I, I rest, and when I'm hungry, I eat, and I try to take a little bit better care of myself when I'm yeah. cold, cold or put on a jacket. Um, I try to keep my place tidy and neat. Yeah. And uh, these little habits of self-care, like I really need to get a haircut right now. And so these little things of self-care, yeah. uh, they... They change the way you relate to yourself and then to to other people as you start taking better care of yourself it uh, it can transform your life and and you're not distracted by this this overwhelming high like I love you know I love the youporn mm-hmm. <laughs> you know I love that like I love the the John Thompson Bukaki videos on yeah. there just like amazing and I you know I used to love that stuff and I would look forward to that, and that would be like the highlight twenty minutes of my day. Now, I want to talk, you know, what 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 you start doing with your sobriety and continue on with your show. But but I want people to know who you were back in the blogger days, Adele. So you're writing a book. You started writing a blog. Look for that com. Was yes, it? yes. And so. How did you get your source back then? You know, I mean, how did you get your source? And when did you knew? What What was the day when you realized you had an influence in the business? Well, I remember. I think it was third grade. Mm-hmm. We we were sitting on this swing bridge and mm-hmm. told to write about the stream that was below us. I just wrote these disconnected uh, phrases. Yeah. And because I didn't quite understand the assignment, but when I read them, mm-hmm. people were so moved. And so that's when I realized in second or third grade how much my writing could, could affect people. Right. So I never had any doubt after second or third grade that my writing could really affect people. As far as becoming influential in the industry, it was kind of similar to the approach that I take in the singles ads. I'm very much of a numbers man. Yeah. I just sent out hundreds of interview requests. Yeah. I just interviewed as many people as I could, just like I used to answer as many singles ads as right. I could. And just simply just meeting enough people, you start developing connections, information, you, things start making sense, yeah. and you really develop uh, an understanding of the industry and you get a lot of great yeah. stories. So, uh, just as, a, as an example of, of the influence that he had, before I met Luke, um, I lived 8,000 miles away on another continent, and um, and I knew who Luke was. I'd seen one of your documentaries. Uh, I, f- I forget which one it was. So Give Me Your Soul. Give Me Your Soul, yeah. So, I mean, I'm l- sitting there on the west uh, western end of Europe mm-hmm. and um, decided to learn a little bit about the porn industry because right. I was curious about how, how it worked with women, how they got into it. Yeah. And, and Luke was the person who, 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 who just through Googling around and stuff, what became my entryway. So he was really kind of like, almost like the public face of the pornography industry for a lot, for quite some time. Because they, they really didn't have one except maybe back in those days, Jenna Jameson or Ron Jeremy. But yeah. you... But no one could talk about it. No one Nobody could, could talk about it the way right. you could. Right. And 
you brought credibility to the business because you were able to explain to people because anyone who was not a part of the business is very mystifying back then. Yeah, very, very, very um, And I was, in a way, I was helped by my personality disorder in that it was very easy for me to turn off all human feelings mm -hmm. about the people I was writing about. Normally, it's very difficult to hang out with people. I was perhaps the first and only person who hung out in the industry day after day, week after week for years and yet wrote about the industry with complete lack of emotion, you know, with complete disinterest. Normally, when you get around people, you start feeling bonds and emotional Absolutely. closeness to them. But because of my brokenness, I was able to hang out with these people and yet feel no emotional connection that would stop my, my reporting what I wanted to report. So, in a way, my lack of intimacy and my yeah. lack of human connection actually enabled what, my what blogging. What drove you to do the reporting? What was it, did that give you a sense of meaning and purpose? And, I mean, because it sounds like you were also reporting things that were just factual and that were interesting, but, of course, maybe damaging for the people well, <laughs> I knew, you're talking about. I knew how much I was interested in pollination. Mm -hmm. And then it became the way I made a living. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then I had this idea that if I could just get my story out there, I could find some solutions for my chronic health problems. Yeah. I thought if I huh. get a huge website that tens of thousands of people read, and if I just have a little corner of it where I talk about my own struggles and my own problems, yes. that I'll get some guidance and help. I see. Be be hmm. Because I remember the first time I think I heard about you was when you released that... Um, 1998 HIV outbreak. Yeah. I think you were the first yeah. guy to say yeah. it. And 97, you know, I, I, John Stelliano, who owns Evil Angel, I mean, it was just shocking news to me. He, he was, he was, he was tested HIV positive because he had a supposedly sexual intercourse with a transsexual, which shocked me because I think most people in the business didn't know he was bisexual. Then, then following you releasing that uh, news, it was just like a shocker to me, you know. And that's when I remember hearing your name. It was um, Treasure Devro, who happened to be my ex-boss's wife, uh, Brooke Ashley and Kimberly J. I think those are the three. Yeah, those are the three names that I broke in early 1988. The were, were, of their were, HIV infections. Were they angry when you released, released this information? Because were they trying to like kind of hush hush about it? Because I think. The pornographers were afraid they didn't want the government interven intervention and, and, and try to pass uh, policies. People, that, they mm -hmm. were emotionally flooded. Mm -hmm. And so they were just flooded and the industry was flooded with fear. And because I was emotionally disconnected, it was easy for me to see the story and yeah. report on it. And I had no emotional fears for the industry. Like it didn't matter to me what the government decided to do with this information. Right. I just want to make sure, because people don't know, in 1998, a male performer named Mark Wallace, if I remember right, I don't know how he got the HIV, but he, had, he was HIV positive. He doctored uh, health paperwork, because every performer before the scene have to make sure they're HIV negative and other STD and so on and so forth to protect each other. He made a fake health result, so... You know, he had a bunch of scenes that couple months, and uh, he ended up infecting three people. Mm. And it was like shocking news to me, you know. And uh, last year, Mr. Marcus had a syphilis. He doctored his doc documentation. So, you know, these I'm very protective of comedians, but uh, but as as critical as I am with the business, I I, I worry about the performers for uh, first. 
then of course I also worry about kids not being um, having access to pornography and things like sure. that. So um, to me, I think you did the right thing because people have to know. I'm sure that wasn't the first time somebody tried something like that. Even though within the business, I'm sure people who had a mixed feelings about you, right? Oh yeah, I, I was often called the most hated man in the industry. Right, I had a lot of death threats. I was knocked around physically a few times. But I noticed with Mark Wallace that all the people who were catching HIV had worked with Mark Wallace a few weeks prior and had done unprotected anal sex. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's how I was able to uncover him as patient zero in this outbreak. I see. And, and also Luke's sitting here, and, and I'm not denying it's true, he's talking about how he was emotionally disconnected and that's what allowed him to do this. If I recall correctly, one of the things you t discussed in your documentary was that these these girls who would come in, the, there's this whole kind of, oh, we're all one community and we all love each other and we all got each other's back. And then these girls who, who, who were kind of used up by the industry and spat out were, were completely disregarded and forgotten. And uh, this whole bullshit about community was was kind of a, a pretense that allowed people to 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 um, be worse than disconnected from these girls to totally neglect um, neglect them and and dehumanize them. Well, the career for a female porn star is a few months, while the career for a male porn star is often ten years. So, what happens to the female porn star after after she's she's been used used up and her utility of the industry is gone? And you 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 also happen to uh, answer that very question you talk about in a uh, new documentary. Life after porn, and in, and um, I thought you're the most honest guy in that thing. I mean, everyone was honest, but your level of honesty was even higher at, at the point of even made the viewers uncomfortable. But I thought you did the service by telling the truth. I mean, I I got a bit of a, like an argument with uh, Bill Margo, who um, runs Free Speech Coalition. I thought, and then we, I talk about this in a couple other episodes with when we did Brandon Iron. But I did have concern for the girls, even though I am a scumbag. Herbert. Yes, this is true. Very true. Mm -hmm. I do have a mixed feelings no, because because they should be protected, you know, because they do it for a few months, maybe a year or two, and they disappear. I just wonder, like, what happened to them, you know? And uh, one of the unreleased episodes, we talk about Haley Page and Chico Wayne. I don't want to get detailed because that's another bit of people should hear, but I do care about them, even though I'm sexually attracted to them. But once I get to know them... You're attracted to somebody named Chico Wang? No, 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 no. Okay, I'm, I'm talking about girls in the business. Oh, I see. Okay. Problem with me is once I get to know the girls, that those feelings is dies. You know, I don't. Uh, once I get to know them, the fantasy is dead. But I, I do care about them. I they don't need to teach you intimacy, Yoshi. I, I think <laughs> the industry does not do a very good job of helping them make transition from adult business to elsewhere and get other helps at all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how do you transition from, like, taking, yeah. you know, penises in your anus yeah. to, you know, what other jobs does that prepare <laughs> yeah. you for aside from working as a prostitute? But, but I think pornography is important because I really do believe that because I think if you don't have enough sex, it's the porn is it's kind of like vitamin in a way. You know, it's a supplement. If you're not getting enough nutrient from the things you're consuming, I've, I've told you I knew in my life a man named Joe Hooker who was the uh, great grandchild of General Joe Hooker from the Civil War, mm -hmm. and the word Hooker comes from his family because mm -hmm. he needed to have a, a a large group of women following behind his Civil War regiment because unless they were having sex with these women. They couldn't fight well because they yes. were too discombobulated. So there, there's definitely a service that's provided. There's no yes. doubt about that. And it's hypocritical for the society to reject them and 
treat them the way they're treating them because I think they're important and I do I do like a lot of them and I don't care what people say it's really really is important and I think we do need to do a better job appreciating them and treat them better I, I don't I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very naive about that even though I don't I, think there's anything that a human being can do beyond taking semen on your face mm -hmm. that will like destroy your humanity yeah because once girls <laughs> start getting photographed taking mm. cum shots to the face like for then from then on for the rest of their life most people won't treat them as human beings like, yeah like, wow you could be our a torturer you said that um, Andy was talking about that how a porn star wants to have sex Andy with who him. Andy Milanakis good job and uh, <laughs> my Greek friend and he he was saying how it was he just doesn't prefer having sex with porn stars because as soon as he googles them he sees all these images of all these cocks on them and these and sperm on their face and whatever what have you and i mean is that traumatizing to a man then to see that um based on a woman only if they're black penises i think otherwise we're okay, <laughs> we're okay. We're, uh, we're, uh, when you're white it's seeing a black penis on a girl that you um, would have sex with no, no, no i guess I've, that's that's a big difference with him because when i see pictures like oh she'll let you do that so um <laughs> how do you see that luke i think it, it destroys them for most people can no longer relate to them as yeah right yeah. They cease to be human beings. So, and they're just seen as sexual objects. You, you had a very. They're seen as trash, mm -hmm. the lowest form of trash. They're seen in some way worse than genocidal murderers. Wow. Like, what are your feelings about that? I think that's just built into the human condition. There's something about sex that is just so powerful that every community has developed taboos relating to mm -hmm. it. And therefore, for communities to survive, they have to regulate sexuality. And if you break those taboos, you are, the, you are trash. Mm. That's just hmm. how, that's how life works. It's mm -hmm. not America. Mm -hmm. Like in Scandinavia, yeah. in Denmark, if you are photographed taking cum shots to the face, you're n not an esteemed member of society. That that's universal. It's just the way the human being works. There are some taboos that you can't break publicly yeah. mm -hmm. and expect to ever be treated as a human being. Mm. It's, it's it's terrible. I, I I'm, I'm very naive. I would like that. I would like. Someday that to, to change and have more respect for them. Good luck. But, but, no, but Luke's saying that that's, Do you that's, feel that's religion plays a big part in that, Luke? Um, I it might, but even without religion, even secular people don't treat girls like this as human beings. Yeah. It's just built in. There are certain taboos. Every society has sexual taboos, and every society does not relate well to women or men who get photographed. Mm -hmm. You know, getting doused in semen. Yeah, uh, if reli religion may incorporate those taboos, but they trans, I mean, they probably they transcend, transcend religion. religion. I don't know that that would turn me off to a woman necessarily, but it might make me more violent toward her when I was aroused. All right, um, I, I don't want to run out of time, so um, I, I just want to surmise by saying you had a very um, successful career at it, and then um, uh, you, have, you had a, quite a bit of influence back when you were blogging and reporting. Uh, you were in 60 Minutes. You did a wonderful job in it. And um, you you really was conduit between porn and uh, mainstream media, and and some people in pornography feel were afraid of you. But you were very successful at it. You're out, and uh, now you're you know which Orthodox Judaism pursued. And uh, it's really interesting listening to you because when jo Joy told me about it, there's many YouTube clips you guys were debating and talking <laughs> about that. It's I highly recommend people to l uh, look at those. Uh, look forward and Joy Kurtzman, but. 
I just want to give you uh, uh, all the time you need to talk about your show because th this is something that's important. I want everybody to come to the show. Name of the show, where you're performing, and thank what you, day. Thank you so much. Yeah, go to eroticizedrage.com for more information. I'm doing my next performance April 4th at Beyond Baroque in Venice, 7 p.m. It's a Thursday night. And for more information about eroticized rage and sex addiction, go to my website, eroticizedrage.com. And can you talk more about that? You know, it's, a, it's a show about how I learned that I have these crippling emotional addictions, mm -hmm. which are at core an intimacy disorder. At core, I'm fundamentally uncomfortable with myself, with other people, and with God. And how I come to realize that I have these crippling addictions and how I tackle them through working a 12-step program and start to make some progress towards leading a normal life. What's that Duran Duran song out somewhere out there? There's a normal world that one day mm -hmm. I hope to find. Right, Hungry yeah, like yeah, a wolf. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 that <laughs> one. <laughs> ordinary world. Yeah, ordinary world. Joey, can, can you give, give uh, because you went to see it, yeah. can, can you give us a, uh, I just, like a Roger Ebert-like critique and uh, um, This is a little ratings. longer than the Roger Ebert thing, but it's would you give him enough. A, would you give him five uh, stars of uh, uh, David? I would give him <laughs> five, five Magen David, five stars of David, but I just want to say this. For six years, I lived in Ireland, which is known for its fantastic yeah, theater. Absolutely. James Joyce. Uh, uh, yeah, but it wasn't just Joyce. It was, it was I saw everything. Everything Ireland had to offer, and, and, and no matter what they do, mm -hmm. it, it's just a very powerful environment for theater. Um, I went... Every single weekend to s with with my ex-wife, we would always go to theater in yeah. Ireland, and I was always looking for something. I was always looking for something that would kind of tear at whatever knots I had in in mm -hmm. my chest. And I remember seeing Nazis. Uh, yeah, well, Nazis wow. are always Nazis are always good, but but um, but Nazis saying Nazi to a Jew is like <laughs> saying nuclear bomb to me. No, right? no, 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 that's not true. We like to talk about Nazis. It's it's it's, it's but um, no, no, but there was there was. You know, Brian Friel was one Irish playwright in particular who, who was very powerful for me. But whatever I was looking for throughout those six years, I never quite got. And when I saw Luke's uh, one-man play, that was what I had been looking for the entire time. It was the single most powerful evening of theater I've experienced in my entire life, and that's after looking very hard for quite some time. I, I can't give it a more powerful endorsement than that. I, 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 um, it was an extremely powerful experience for me. I really want those people who are close to me. I want you and I want Dave in particular to go to that goddamn show. I think you need it. Yeah. April 4th, Venice, we're there. Yeah. I, pl please come. Everyone who's close to me, please come. Everyone who's not co close to me, come anyway. It's uh, it's 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 mind-blowing. So so if you care about yourself at all, if you have any self-respect, for God's sakes, show up. Okay. Thank, thank you, and it's only $8. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think we're at 19. So we're airing this podcast on uh, March 18th. So that will give you a little over two weeks. I will tell all my uh, close friends with over 100,000 Twitter accounts to just retweet and talk about it. But um, yeah, I, w I want people to come. I hope you have a chance to film it. Um, uh, it must be, it has to be filmed. Yeah, and um, maybe even make DVDs on it. And I think um, maybe even commenters and things like that. But you know, I, I when 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 Joey was away in Japan, like a couple of months, you know, I, I would call Luke and we go and have a conversation. It's 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 so fun to talk to Luke, you know, because he's so honest, and he made me, he didn't make me uncomfortable. That's the funny thing. He, it's a little different because other comedians, when they're so honest, it makes me uncomfortable. But I really appreciate it because um, I have those feelings too. 
you know. Yeah, Luke's not trying to make anybody uncomfortable. No, he's no. just telling. He's just. He's just kind of telling him like it is. But um, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I don't remember what I was going to say, but uh, but I, I think you know a lot of again. I keep going back to the DVD ASA podcast and how mm. you know they've get thirty thousand, however many listeners they yeah. get a month, and every. Th- Anybody who listens to that needs to come to this too, and I hope Luke goes on that podcast as well because I, I really think that we live in Los Angeles, the, the locus of, of, of you know kind of therapeutic culture in this country, and for anyone to spend all their time going to a therapist and not to go to this show to me is just very very foolhardy. Um, <laughs> no, I mean that. I'm not. I'm I know, not. That's uh, good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, so I'm I'm, I'm hoping. And, and here's the thing. I I do look at the breakdown and who listened to what. I like. I um. I have not did, I have done this before, but anyone who's listened to this, you're overseas, whether you're in Europe or Australia or UK, um, Japan, wherever it is. If you're interested in having Luke perform in your countries, contact him because um, it, it, it's it's such an honest thing, and people don't talk about it. And the bigger c- the countries are more with the, uh, too many taboos. I think they they need to hear something like this. So. Yeah, uh, I don't think Europe has the balls. If there's Europeans listening, I don't think you have the balls for this show. To be honest, I'd be really Scandinavia. It's, it's because I, I, I think Luke, Luke is very, very funny too, and I, I like I like hearing these conversations because not enough of his talk. So, yeah. look, what, what's your um, all, all your information? Like your what's your Twitter account address? Yeah, just go to eroticizedrage.com or moralleader.com, mm-hmm. and uh, you'll get connected to everything I'm doing. I just go to it's lukeford.net yours. Yeah, lukeford.net okay. is mine. Go to YouTube, put in Luke Ford. Yeah, and um, any religious things of uh, the listeners are interested? It's Luke Ford and our good friend Joy Kirchman. It's really fun to listen to that. And um, I mean, Lily, did you, do you have anything to add? Because you know. You know I, I respect your opinion about therapy, and you know it's always tough on you because you're you're usually the only female in the group. But um, do you do you have any concerns, recommendation, or you know uh, to look? I mean, well, it seems as if you are on your path, and you've found something that works for you, and something that also is so is healing and allowing you to be in your being as opposed to being a product of something that is just outlashing to anger or or abuse or not having the love that you needed so i mean it just sounds like just having a short time with you uh, hearing a little bit about your evolution in yourself was quite a beautiful transformation and that you continue to do that and now that you are also using it to uh, put into a show I think is fantastic to yeah. reach other people and continue to be an inspiration to others and still continue to build a better relationship to yourself which is ultimately the most important thing you can do thank you mm-hmm. enjoy um, anything more to add for our good friend Luke no I mean I just the um, Lily said something about inspiring I mean I often think of myself I guess you know maybe it's an ego thing of being more kind of staring myself down mm-hmm. more directly than other people do and being aware of my own frailties and weaknesses. One of the things I came away from Luke's show with was thinking, boy, I've got a lot of room for progress still. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so uh, yeah, it is really inspiring in that respect. And, and I, all I can do is reiterate my hope that, that as many people as possible will, yeah. will, will give themselves the chance to see it. I have to say, as a friend, I really appreciate your friendship. And uh, I know even with adult business, it took a lot of courage because 
there are, believe it or not, there's a lot of crazy people in the adult <laughs> business, and I've dealt with those craziness, both verbal and physical threats. So I, I know, like a great um, quarterback for Cowboys, Mr. Uh, Starbuck. Uh, Roger Starbuck. Roger Starbuck. <laughs> you, you literally took beatings from those psychopaths and crazy people in the adult business, but every time you, did, you got hit, you got up and you, you reported. You did a wonderful job. I love the conversation that I have with you. And uh, I just hope that you have a good re good or better relationship or ha have some relationship with your dad. I don't know. How's that going? Is that, is, is that still good? Because he's, he's getting kind of up there in age, right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's 84. So yeah. Uh, is it? Is it it it's, uh, it's difficult. Is it difficult? It, yeah. His life is all about Jesus. And, yeah. And, and it's been very difficult. And a great person as you are, it's really tough to compete with Jesus. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm not a religious person to say, but that's a tough one. Um, but... I'm going to come to see you on April 4th, and I'm looking forward to it. And I think everybody should, you know, if you can't see it, just contact him. Maybe he could make a DVD, and he could, um, you know, he needs the money to do a bigger and better projects. So I'm, I'm hoping he tape it. I hope he could sell it to you guys. I hope you guys are generous enough to bring him to your country and have him performance. And because Luke is just an amazing person, and, and, and all the stories from adult business and his religious interests, fantastic. So... Um, I'll finish the show with uh, Luke, your last words, and we'll get out of here. Oh, thank you so much. I'd love to uh, have you guys catch my show either live or on YouTube about learning, how, how coming to, to grips with yourself and with the things that are holding you back. So my understanding of addiction is that the reward centers in your brain operate in a way that does not allow you to make good decisions. So if you find that there are parts of your life where you're consistently making bad decisions... You may well have an addiction, and uh, there is ways to get help for that. Thanks, Lou. Thanks, Thanks Joey. Thanks, Lou. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, Ernie. Thank you, Lou. 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 Thank you, Lou.